Hello, this is Future PMC. We are releasing episodes to the main feed of Radio Free Mercury, our patron-exclusive podcast series that covered The Witch from Mercury on a week-to-week basis as it aired. This week, we are releasing our discussion on episode 18 with Tom Asnable. This podcast was originally published on May 27th, 2023. Right now, also on the main feed, we've just wrapped up our coverage of Gunbuster with two history episodes, six episodes covering the OVA, and two more episodes covering translations of the novelization and some prequel short stories. Our current bonus podcast series ongoing is called Moon Race Wireless, a twice-a-month podcast covering single episodes of Turn A Gundam. The first four episodes of Moon Race Wireless are on the free main feed for you to check out. Check those out and then consider going over to patreon.com slash giantrobotfm to subscribe for the remainder of those episodes. We are currently about to put out episode, I think, seven in a week or so, so you can find episodes five or six currently patron-exclusive. In the next few weeks on the main feed, we will be featuring discussions with friends about Armored Core 6, Fires of Rubicon. I look forward to some new faces and old podcast friends stopping by to offer their thoughts. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Giant Robot FM, your home of all things Mecca, be a giant or otherwise. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. We're back. G-Witch is back. Everyone's happy. Suleta Sundays have returned in our lives for an indeterminate amount of time. Who knows? We Probably. still don't know. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, to, I guess, pull back the curtain. It's We want to like offer future episodes to guests, but I'm worried that like we'll offer an episode that doesn't will never exist. We're, bu- we're building this r- the railway as we go, the Mobile Suit Gundam <laughs> Railway. We don't know how many stops there are. Now, of course, speaking right now as PMC, PMC, how are you? Your, uh, your speed run, not debut, but your next big speed run activity is imminent. Yeah, so if you're listening to this episode when it first drops uh, on the Patreon feed, thank you uh, for, for subscribing. I am going to be at Summer Games Done Quick 2023 in Minneapolis uh, the following week. So that event will begin on uh, May 28th, run through June 3rd. I'll be doing a run late Wednesday, technically Thursday, June 1st at uh, 2.20 Eastern Time. You're always going to want to check the schedule page to see what the run is. I'm doing True Crime New York City, so not, not quite a mecha game this time, although I will be. Don't worry, I'll be submitting mecha games again in the future, but... Doing True Crime New York City, the 2005 uh, classic quotes, and uh, it should be a very good time. I'm very, very excited to show that runoff. Awesome. I'm looking forward to watching it. Like I told you, probably not live, probably (laughs) afterwards, or maybe live, we'll see. But of course, we are not alone. The uh, New Jersey energy is off the charts here. We are joined by Tom Asnwell. Tom, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. Hey, I'm glad to be back so that I could uh, eat crow and really just learn not to ever predict anything in Gundam ever again because I'm always wrong. The last time I was on here, I my predictions for where Gwell's storyline was going, it turned out to be completely the opposite. So there's that. Not since I predicted that the Neo Zeong would in fact not be in Gundam narrative have I put my foot in my mouth so badly. <laughs> 50% of what I say in the mic 
is nonsense. And I've I've gotten used to just after I record an episode, completely forgetting what I said days later, sometimes even hours later. I'm gonna say that uh, Guell is trying to fit himself into a role to replace his father, and he will just ultimately have to strike out and be his own identity. But uh, he is still probably gonna work from within the system at this point. But we, I mean. I'm jealous of the guest that got to talk about his adventures on Earth, though, because what a great episode that was. Standout episode, totally. Actually, speaking of Gundam, we have some Gundam news to talk about. Um, Nozomi has announced a trio of Gundam Blu-rays, Gunpla Builders, Beginning G, Mobile Suit Gundam Sound, and Mobile Suit Gundam Twilight Axis Remain of the Red, all of which are scheduled to release on August 15th. Tom, I know you have some thoughts here. Are any of these worth checking out? I'm a big fan of two out of three of these titles and a, a, a an anti-fan of the last one. <laughs> um, so I'm, I really have a lot of affection for Gunpla Beginners, uh, Gunpla Builders Beginning G in particular. It's kind of, for those who aren't aware, it's basically the prototype uh, for the build franchise uh, not including things like Pluma Koshiro and uh, various other Gunpla manga that preceded it. But it's a short series. In total, it's about 45 minutes long. And it's kind of the... It's basically them speedrunning the plot of like a shonen uh, collecting and battling anime where uh, a child who has no knowledge of Gundam, one day he goes to see the uh, life-size RX-78 Gundam at its original location at Shiokaze Park in Odaiba, uh, which I also visited at the time because it was only there for like one summer. I think it got moved for like typhoon season or something. But I, that's one thing that really like resonates with me a lot. It's like, oh, I remember walking under those trees and seeing the Gundam on the other side. I remember going to that merch tent with all the Echo Pla there. But he like, yeah, he like buys a Gunpla for the first time. Mysteriously, a unique Gunpla that can beat everybody. Uh, learns how to build and paint a gunpla, and then is immediately run to the corner arcade where he can battle, uh, basically, uh, a, a idol, a, like an idol who uses a high new Gundam that he doesn't build himself. And then our scrappy protagonist, who had never built a gunpla before that day, is like, "You don't even build your own gunpla. Can you even call yourself a gunpla builder?" It's wonderful. Also, uh, that show's version of Shar rides a horse everywhere. His name is Boris mm. Shower, and it's wonderful. Boris Shower, yeah, S C H A U E R. I love it when Gundam I, puts him on a horse. That's always fantastic. Yeah. I put together a little AMV for him based on uh, using a clip from Old Town Road when that was a popular song, and I got a DMCA strike on that. <laughs> That's perfect. But it's like it's a lot of fun. I remember when it came out, I was like the only one in my group of friends who likes Gundam who thought it was good because uh, it's just you. It's just a fun little yeah. It's like a little sports anime show in the way the builders are. Also, it's directed by Ko Matsuo, who would go on to direct. Gundam Thunderbolt, so you got that going there too. So I, I'm a longtime fan of that director in particular, I guess, since mm-hmm. I love Gundam Thunderbolt so much. Gundam Sound, on the other hand, based on a long-running four-panel gag manga in Gundam Ace, uh, I have a lot of affection for this too. It was a comic that I read pretty frequently when I was learning Japanese in college because gag manga, especially when it's based on inside jokes from an anime that you know, is a pretty easy way to kind of like read simple Japanese. It wouldn't surprise me if it was still running to this day. I haven't checked, but that anime adaptation is really fun. It's very like crude and crass. Um, you get this; it's a bit 
it's very irreverent, but still has like all of the original voice actors and stuff. The style is kind of cool. Whenever they depict mobile suits, they're almost in like a plasticky, like not quite gunpla, but like very toy looking style. It's very funny. And it's like in a way that's like distinct from SD Gundam, which I really appreciate. Cause it's very like human character focused for the most part, but you also do get to hear the mobile suits complain to each other about what's going on when the pilots aren't around. So mm. that's fun. Uh, Twilight Axis, on the other hand, is uh, I, I don't want to sugarcoat it. I think it's the worst uh, UC Gundam anime there is. Ooh. But it's only 24 minutes, so you won't lose a ton of time by watching it. Uh, it's unfortunately kind of a throwback to the old like 80s and 90s anime that's like basically an ad for the source material that you can't really understand without it. Mm. Uh, it's based on a a uh, Yatate Bunko web novel by uh, Arc Performance of the same name. And uh, a little my understanding is that the ending is different, but it really does the whole like flanderization of Shara thing in a way that I find really irritating. Like insert, you have all these kind of like Shar stand-ins. Like the main characters are a heretofore never before seen, uh, engineer who has always been working on all of Char's mobile suits and a test pilot who in every way resembles Char's piloting style but is unwilling to kill so he's not fit for the battlefield so you have a a Char pilot stand in as well and you get to and it's like it's just an excuse to give like have like here's Char's Zaku 3 that you never got to see in anything and also the Sazabi has just been sitting on Axis ever since the end of Shard's counterattack. And for some reason, the Sleeves and Unicorn never harvested it as a propaganda tool or tech or anything. It's a whole lot of nonsense, frankly. I'm not a big fan of it. But again, it's 24 minutes long. And these all three of these, like you said, they're coming out the same day. They're You can buy it in a bundle and save some money, which I did because I'm a completionist freak. Uh but yeah, so the, that's the rundown, I guess, on what Nozomi is releasing. It's cool that they're doing more catalog stuff in general because, like, their last few years of stuff has been primarily new uh, Gundam content. I think the most recent thing that would have been, like, catalog would have been uh, their Gundam Seed releases. What's left? Is it just G-Savior? G-Savior and SD Gundam series, for the most mm. part, yeah. There's, like, they have not released a single SD Gundam series, whether it's the old OVAs, Superior Defender Gundam or any of the more recent ones, the SD Gundam World or the San Gokuden series. Um, none of those have a physical release in the US on that's in print in any way. Uh, Superior Defender Gundam had a Bondi release back in the day, but that's about it. Interesting. I guess there's that. There's Dones Island on Blu-ray in the States. Yeah, and in, in that case, I'm not including when I'm talking about. Yeah, that would be like catalog yeah. stuff. That's not including yeah. Dones Island. It's not including Hathaway. That's not including a. Uh, 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 Gundam Breaker Battlelog. And I guess G-Witch, too. I, I do wonder if and when G-Witch is going to get a Blu-ray release in the States in like oh, the next and, year or uh, two. Or I guess if, you're, if we're also including... Oh, and the uh, G-Reco movies. And if we're counting... If we're counting G Savior in the in the bunch, you may as well uh, shout out Gundam Build Real, the live-action Gundam Build installment. Oh, wow. Didn't even know yeah, that was It was, was briefly streaming on Gundam Info and just the way that they do things, just kind of like timed expiration. They're all private now. But you know, if you're if you're industrious, you can find them. I really wonder who's running Gundam Info's Twitter page um, because they have a they they have a pretty good eye for detail and like good. They've been pumping out some decent memes, but also if they want to hire me and spotlighting members, spotlighting members of the English speaking Gundam community, which is cool. Yeah, that is dope. 
All right. Speaking of Gundam, Tom, about a month ago, you published an article over on Medium compiling all the breadcrumbs that G-Witch dropped up until that point, which I think was episode 14, uh, hinting that Ari and Suleta aren't the same person. Uh, listeners, it's a great piece and well worth your time. Tom, how was the reception of that piece? A lot of people were talking about it on my feed. Yeah, I mean, uh, it seemed like gen- the in general, uh, it was fairly positive. It's kind of my favorite type of article to do because it's, it's just compilation of research or of existing information and just putting it all in one spot so people could find it all in one place. Because I like to research much more than I like to write, so there's that. Oh, totally. But it's, it's something that I basically had written in draft form uh, for a, a, for weeks, if not months, like in the break between seasons, that I just, again, I'm like gun-shy about predicting things. I just never hit that publish button. And then when they revealed the revelation in that episode, I was like, well, I have to release this as a response to this. It's the last possible time this content will be relevant. <laughs> So, Tom, after you publish your piece, four episodes of G-Witch have aired. How have you felt about them, the last four episodes? I felt uh, pretty positive on them, honestly. I mean, after we got the big reveal, we did have, like, basically a week away from from dealing with that revelation with the Gwell on Earth episode. Um, and, I mean, we'll talk about it, it, it. This episode in particular that we're going to talk about really was a big a big info dump on like this aspect in particular of, uh, of airy being uh, the aerial. And uh, we finally learned a bit about the gunned bits, but I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves just yet. But all in all, like as far as the pacing, I'm like, I'm really hoping for four cores guys. I'm really hoping for it. Cause there's just like a lot going on. And this is a world that I want to know more about. Same. Uh, yeah. I'm real curious about the material conditions on earth. I'm not sure if the show is as interested in the material conditions as I am, but I am hoping for four cores. But if I were a betting man, I'd bet on two cores. I'm increasingly, uh, I, I increasingly think that we're probably not going to see like a traditional, uh, like war in this the way we would in other Gundam series. Uh, maybe it will be more like these kind of like scattered corporate conflicts, but yeah, if it deals more into like earth casting off the Benerit group or whatever, uh, then there's a lot of, uh, there's just like a lot of, a lot of recipes for conflict in here that are brewing. Speaking of recipes for conflict, let's jump right into episode 18, our empty selves. We open on a lecture as one of Suleta's teachers contextualizes the unique properties and historical significance of Permit. I like how it turns out that like Permit has been this series, like Minofsky particles, basically like the, the one conceit that makes the sci-fi world go. Uh, but it, it's something that I kind of realized that up until this point, I don't believe Permit's really been, Permit and its role has been explicitly defined in this way outside of like, the official glossary on the official website. Does that sound right to you guys? Yeah, I think permit has been like established in importance, right? Because they talk about like where they get it, like where it's been mined. We know where it's mined. We know it's in mobile suits. We know that Elan has it in his body uh, or the, you know, the artificial Elans. Um, But I don't think it's been to this point that it's basically like, oh, it's like a circuit for information, right? It's like a super ethernet cable, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I can't help but like maybe but, maybe that maybe that's reductive, but that's kind of how I'm seeing it. No, it's just I, like I think really, that's right. 
I, I think yeah. they I think they are hammering home the communication capability of permit because they want to make you aware of how uh, how pernicious Quiet Zero could be, right? Like it's it's like right. permits in everything. What would happen if someone hijacked that? Oh, we're suddenly in a Hideo Kojima game. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Microplastics or nano machines, of course. Have you guys talked about uh, all of uh, Soleta's team up dialogue from the SD Gundam game? I, I watched a little bit of that, but I, we have not discussed it on the podcast now. Right, because there's one that she has if you team her with Hiro Yui in the Wing Zero, and she and uh, they kind of have a little dialogue that seems like Soleta's talking about Quiet Zero and not the actual Zero system, and like Hiro's kind of kind of understands that it's something to be feared and it's something that's ominous. So I recommend any listener to check that out. Just it's, it's a hoot. There's like a lot of really fun custom dialogue that, that Solita gets to like, uh, and her voice actor and picture like gets to really flex with her fun noises that she makes. Yeah. There are some really good ones. I really like the, the narrative guy showing up and being like, Oh, someone's in your mobile suit. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. yeah. They're very, they know exactly what they're doing. Yep. Now, specifically, the teacher says, quote, when permit was discovered within minerals, its special information sharing properties became the basis for all these theories. Today, it's responsible for controlling and managing systems of every kind. Suleta, attentive and interested, follows up with questions. It almost sounds like it is like some kind of like, like a super conductive, but also uh, element with like data storage capability, right? Yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah. I mean, right, guys, that's the question. Of how, how did they store Ari? So it must be, you know, it must both transmit right, she's and in store. The permit. Yeah. I feel like its properties can fit any narrative conceit, though. It, it doesn't stick to my brain as well as Minofsky particles. Like Minofsky right. particles. Right. Minofsky particles are the, the perfect thing. They explain why close up combat is necessary, why there's no radar, why there's enough thing, enough power to make the big robot go. It explains why you can have beam savers, beam weaponry of any kind. It is the do-it-all particle of Gundam. So Permit is not nearly as uh, flexible as Minofsky particles that we've seen. Maybe that'll change. I'm really glad just to see a fucking teacher. I got to say that. As an educator, I'm happy to <laughs> see one like of my a, kind. A, cl- a class. Yeah, totally. We're, uh, right. We've seen like mobile suit class, but even then it's like uh, they've been having examinations i don't think we've seen anyone teaching a uh, select of the basics of mobile suit cqc it's interesting too speaking of how the class like the, how the classrooms are arranged and designed because it feels more like a college lecture hall i'm sure i've referred to these teachers like this technically is a secondary school but i'm sure i've referred to them in the past as professors um, which kind of makes sense just given the environment they're in um it's not like because it's 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 architecturally it's designed like a lecture hall like a lecture hall that you could fit 200 odd people in it's not surprising that suleta's teacher teacher is instructing directly with direct instruction what i mean by that is like a lecture-based format like this very much jives with the overall vibe of astacasia like i do not is imagine technically a trade school <laughs> or like a i guess it's like a business school where you also both. get to learn to pilot giant robots yeah, the state of education in the in the Ad Stella timeline is another big mystery too. I'm my guess is that Astacasia is unique amongst other uh, other houses of higher learning in that it caters to the the Spacian elites uh, kids. Yeah, I'm curious if like, 
public education exists, period, or it's just a sea of charter schools. Yeah, Astakasi is definitely a charter school. I was, I was about to say exactly sure. that. Yeah, it is not. It, I don't think Astakasia is the norm. And sp- yeah, and uh, because of that, like, I don't imagine that like group work or social learning would be favored at a school that prioritizes competition and the illusion of individual achievement. Um, I'm kind of bagging a bit on direct instruction here. I will say <laughs> as a sidebar, as an educator, I do think direct instruction, like the classic lecture format, has its uses. And it's it can be my preferred mode of teaching with like a very engaging back and forth with the students. They did encourage, at least in the mobile suit uh, exam, to work with like a spotter. So that's something, I guess. True. There is team, I guess there is team-based instruction or at least team-based activities when it comes to like maintaining a mobile suit. As if like you have your pit crew and you have your, your race car. But the rest right. of the education seems to be very individually based. And also you can just like pitch to form a company in the Benerit group, which is... I don't think a thing you could do at most business schools. It's worth pointing out that his uniform, by his, I mean the teacher, that his uniform is different too. Like with the exception of the holder, it seems that the standard student uniform consists of like an ashy green and black jacket with red accents and matching shorts. The teacher's uniform, it seems, I can't, can't see what he's wearing under, you know, underneath his torso, but it seems like the teacher's uniform is the same except that it has light blue accents. Maybe he's not a teacher. Maybe he's like more like a, a teaching assistant. But he does he does seem to be on the younger side. And I kind of went down, as so I was thinking about like uniforms, I kind of went down a rabbit hole here and to see like who changes the way they look, um, who accessorizes their uniforms, who customizes their uniforms. And maybe it's to make a statement or maybe it's out of concern for comfort or both. Like I I've immediately thought of Shadiq because before he became acting CEO, uh, Shadiq had a very distinctive look. Uh, he kept his jacket open with his chest chest usually laid bare for anyone to see. Uh, he also wore these matching, I guess like Birkenstock esque sandals, um, which kind of like suggest a carefreeness, like a, a kind of like a flirtatious insouciance. Sabina has a, like I like really like how she mixes and matches her um, her outfit. She has the shoulder cape, which rules. She's got those thigh high boots. Like she cuts a very severe and no nonsense figure. I think the only part of Shadiq's uniform that's actually his uniform is just the jacket. Everything else seems like it's what he's bringing to the table. He's got like jodhpurs or something, and some kind of uh, a shirt underneath the jacket that has like yellow accents. Also begs the question, how strictly are these rules enforced? But again, Shadiq is also the son of a very powerful person. So maybe right. he has certain privileges. I have to imagine privileges. the rules are different for them. Yeah. Yeah. I got I to gotta give a shout out to my boy Nuno, though, because he's like pulled right out of a Kevin Smith film. He's got, he's got his beanie, his hoodie, his knee-length shorts. Um, I imagine this is, this might be less like out of stylistic concerns and more out of comfort because he definitely looks very comfortable. And then I thought, because I started like making notes of who like where customizes their uniform or wears a different, slightly different uniform. I was thinking maybe the kids who dress more distinctly are more iconoclastic or more rebellious. I couldn't really make that connection. I don't think that dichotomy proves true, but it's cool to see. Like, bottom line, kids are kids, and they'll find all sorts of ways to express themselves and thump their nose at authority. I am definitely very curious if there'll ever be a situation where there's a uniform code 
you know, crack down. Cause I mean, I, I had the experience of that. I, I went to Catholic schools up until I went to university and I can definitely remember one winter in my high school where there was a fierce administrative crackdown on uh, girls wearing scarves with their uniforms throughout the school day. And so <laughs> I, I definitely wonder if, uh, you know, will, will Delling Rembrandt wake up and say, no, no Nobody. more custom uniforms. <laughs> I think it would be really funny if Shadiq somehow wins this power struggle and he's the one who clamps down on uniforms. Like him <laughs> of all people, the least <laughs> uniformed man who ever since he got serious now is the most uniformed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's very prim and proper. Yeah, I wonder if Dowling's going to wake up soon. We've only got, what, four, <laughs> five, six more episodes? Not much time left, buddy. You got to get up. Oh, wow. <laughs> you got to yeah, wake up. Right. Maybe it's that, that's the last shot of court two. It's just him waking up. His eyes opening. What, it, He'll did, wake up and it'll be a component of Quiet Zero. Yes. <laughs> so in this opening sequence, the, we get a little montage with Suleta. Um, in the aftermath of Muriné's rejection, Suleta has thrown herself into her studies and goal setting. We see her diligently operating a demi trainer, concocting a new meal at lunch, and checking things off her ever shrinking list. Her Earth House friends are worried about her. Given everything that has happened, she seems too cheerful to them. I got to say, uh, immediately when I saw her going through the motions here, I thought, man, this is a really accurate portrayal of coping with trauma, like throwing yourself into your hobbies and sticking to routines. My default mode when I'm depressed or in pain is to bury myself in a video game or a book or a TV show, like to the point of obsession. Um, obviously, it's a distraction. To be honest, not that I miss those days, but like in my early 20s, like if I came upon a period of unemployment and could like throw myself into a video game wholeheartedly for like a month when I'm doing nothing. Part of me kind of misses those days. You just have too much responsibility now. I know there's too much podcasting to do. PMC will be knocking on my door. Hey, <laughs> I got it. Record radio. Free record. But yeah, so definitely doing everything she can to confronting some unfortunate emotional revelations. And we're also getting a reminder here as well. And I think we kind of knew this from from episode four when she operated the Demi Trainer. But we're reminded again that Suleta does, in fact, know how to pilot a mobile suit. It, it was not just the aerial. She can still right. do it the thing. It was not like the, as far as we know, it has not been two-way communication between uh, Ari and Suleta all this time. Like, it's not until she can reach the higher permit scores that she can freely communicate with Ari at all. And it's not until, uh, what is it, Permit 8 that Aerie's able to operate independently. So she's been piloting since she was a child. Which, of course, makes me say, Suleta Schwarzetta. <laughs> Did you tweet that out, PMC? You could probably get I have some not good tweeted numbers. that out. Yeah, I was probably going to. I mean, I, I think I made that joke in the, in the Discord. And uh, if, if the opportunity presents itself. I will certainly be shopping a Saleta Schwartzetta joke to you, Stephen. Saleta Schwartzetta, and she just she takes her headband off and puts it over her eyes. Mm. <laughs> make sure make sure to at Russell for that one. <laughs> I guess when we when we reference Russell first, we should do shout outs to Brain Powered. Yeah. <laughs> On a call with potential investors, Ghoul pitches the viability of Jaturk heavy machinery in an attempt to shore up his floundering family business. However, they're not convinced. Financing is pointless if you can't meet your goals, even for the son of Vim Jaturk. Afterward, 
Ghoul assesses the situation with Miorine, who's in the room with him, and Prospera, who's calling in remotely. Rhetorically, Prospera asks about the new mobile suit that his company had been, and is, developing. Miorine appears surprised. A Gundam? She exclaims, moments later, when she gets a good look at the Schwarzette in the hangar. This is a mecha trope that I always appreciate, when a show teases a new suit before fully revealing it. So, I, I, I think you're right to point this out, and I'm going to let you continue that thought about this trope in a second. But I also wanted to check in on a, a sort of meta-textual point here, which is that we've known about the short set for some time now, because it was, I believe, revealed or teased as a future model kit. But we didn't know, like... Ever, of course, once we saw it, everyone started speculating on whose Gundam would it be. Regardless of that, we've known about this soon. I am kind of curious, and I was hoping maybe uh, Tom could answer this, which is to say, is it normal for us to know about a mobile suit from a model kit before it appears on the show at all? It's fairly common practice for them to at least release like a silhouette with a tentative name, usually something as straightforward as like mobile suit A, mobile suit B, and then they won't actually reveal the name until later on. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- believe that was the case with the Schwarzett as well. Uh, although I do feel like we did get a bit of lead time on this one, but I feel like this was something that we did see during IBO as well. This happens all the time with like a st- new Star Wars film. Like a toy will leak six months, twelve months before the film's release date, and you get like a little sneak peek into, you know, the new technology that's going to be debuted. Happens all the time in like the American film industry. I mean, I remember there's like an old uh, the old story with the the old Dick Tracy action figure line that it inadvertently revealed uh, that Madonna was secretly the villain of that film. And mm-hmm. it was something that they had to like, I don't know if they had to recall it or something, but it's just like a funny little detail that like very frequently, yeah, the merchandise can spoil the the media. Yeah, and usually like normies out there, whenever I mention these tidbits, have no idea what I'm talking about. It's uh, I'll talk about byproducts of being terminally online, but this is one of them. And usually mecha shows, like, this this trope can happen in a bunch of different ways, like a conversation between characters. Schematics on a commu- computer screen is probably the big one. Maybe, like, rumors making their way through the ranks. However, whenever, however a show decides to do it, like, it's, it's a, I think it's a really effective way to build suspense and excite viewers. Like, it's a very, very basic storytelling technique, but I think a really effective one. Like, and G-Witch did this before. It did this with the aerial rebuild earlier in the season, or I guess earlier last season. And I, I have the weirdest pulls sometimes. When I was thinking about, like, pet precedent for this trope, I thought of, there's a moment in Glory of the Losers, the Gundam Wing manga, when Trey's, and this is different than how it goes down in the show, but Trey's early on in volume two or three is looking at schematics of the Tall Geese two and three volumes before they actually show up. And also even, like, it's that's a pretty frequent thing that shows up in Gundam Wing in particular too, right? Where we reveal the mobile suit before it shows up and it's not limited to gun wing either but even like in your specific example with the tall geese i think the first time we even see it it's like in an underground bunker and it doesn't even have the tall geese face mask on face mask on it it's just like a white leo holding the face oh that's which right n- not dissimilar to the schwarz at this pa- this point which while we know it's a gundam because we're told it does not yet have a recognizable gundam face I think the headless tall geese has been memed. Like now my memory is running wild here. I think I remember someone stuck like a Lego head on it. I'm sure there's been all sorts of uh, alterations. I think I saw, I was like searching for a screenshot of this earlier and I saw a meme that was like, uh, 
when you see the girl you like without your makeup and it's like that picture. I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> I like though that like in seeing the Schwartz set, and this is something that people notice ahead of time again because of the model kit solicitation that like, I like that basically assigning each company their own dedicated mecha designer really kind of creates this design language that's distinct to each one. You know, you've got like, Inada for pale, you have Ebikawa for grassly, and uh, Ipe Gyobu doing all of the Jaturk designs. And I feel in particular with the Schwarz set, you see a lot of Daryl Balda DNA in it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I wish, I, I, my goal is to post a lot more G-Witch mechs on Mecha Day, but sometimes I have trouble tracking down the mechanical designer because that information has been... Um, slow to be revealed at times. Like usually when the episode debuts a new mobile suit, the mechanical designer hasn't been officially revealed or they haven't come on Twitter and say, I did this. Yeah, that's usually how people find out, right? I mean, it's it's usually safe to assume like, yeah, it's so far it's been like all the ones I mentioned are those particular designers, but like the, and all of the, um, like the Lafrith, the Ariel, those have all been like, those have been Genthied. I think that's how his name is pronounced. Uh, and so far, the drones have been done by, well, at least the Gunvolva uh, was Takuki Yanase. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, the Gund node is also him, if like that's his function, that he's making the like the humanoid G-bits, basically. And the uh, I believe the, the Lafrith variants that Donald Fold used, those were Naruhiro Washio designs, who's best known for, you know, the Barbatos at this point, but also the thrones before that from Double O. Sidebar, I had a, I have a student right now who wrote an entire college essay on the Barbados. I haven't seen IBO. He does, he's also unaware of my Mecca, alternate Mecca identity. I'm a Mecca That's podcaster by night. fascinating. Are you sure he doesn't know and wasn't trying to like get some, uh, get some brownie points that way? <laughs> I think if he did, he'd pro, he's a little on the shyer side, but I think he'd probe me for like more information. He knows I'm watching G-Witch and I'll ask him like how the, if he enjoyed the episode. He was actually at the Dones Island screening that PMC and I attended. Oh, wow. So I think the theater we went to is the only theater like in a 50 mile radius um, in South Jersey that was playing it. Yeah, that was not much of a coincidence. There was not, no other theaters around us playing that film. On that note, not my student, but on the previous note, talking about the trope. There is a variation of this trope that I personally find very like satisfying, but I think other people don't find to be as quite as satisfying as I do. It's like when a show teases a mecha, but for whatever reason, like maybe it's a creative decision or a result of production issues, never actually reveals it. Because um, that way your mind will forever run wild with the possibilities of what if. Um, case in point, there's a moment in Ava when Kensuke, uh, Shin's, Shinji's nerdy classmate, and he mentions in passing that Ava Unit 4, which we learned was being developed in America, was lost. The show never follows up on this point, which as a kid, as like a 13-year-old watching Evangelion for the first time, really fired up my imagination. Like the complete mystery of it all is very tantalizing. Naturally, it's Evangelion. Future supplemental material went back and filled in those blanks. And it's boring as shit. Like, you to actually see what the Unit 4 looks like, it's, it's so plain ass. It's just a silver variation of the Unit 3. It's very underwhelming. Uh, it got me thinking of... Stephen King wrote an essay about, like, what is scary. And he has this metaphor of the closed door. Basically, once you know what's behind the closed door, the monster ceases to be either horrifying or interesting. 
Kai, good kaiju flicks operate in the same manner. Once you see Godzilla, once you see the big monster fully in all its glory, it loses that appeal. Uh, and I think the same is true with this trope. Um, I kind of wish this trope was used more and more shows use this creative restraint, even though for a lot of people, it's not very satisfying because they don't actually get to see what the mecha looks like. It's so rare at this point because usually when this door is left, uh, you know, once this door is left closed, it's almost always at this point meant to be like, oh, and you'll get to see what it is by reading the side story manga, yeah. right? For in the in the case of Gundam, it's like all those tantalizing spaces between the model numbers of Xeon mobile suits, which have since been filled for the most part. Yeah, Gundam, for obvious reasons, rarely does this as heavily commercialized as it is. <laughs> well, I mean, it's I mean, it it wasn't always like that. It took some time, right? Like you have the MSO seven goof, you have the MSO nine Dom, and for twenty years there wasn't an MSO eight. Although I'm sure there was something in like a Dojin at some point, but it took until the mid to late nineties when the for the Afrit to show up, the MSO eight. So, you know, it just it depends, right? And now we have more like established like early MS numbers via origin. But uh, that's kind of the original version of that, right? Like you have these, it, it's, there were mobile suits here, right? But how, do, how can we skip this number? Or even, yeah, went, even the, you know, the Gundam itself, the 782. Or is it exactly, 781? Two. I, Although uh, I believe the two is a, a later edition. Oh, was it? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's funny you mentioned that because I went down a rabbit hole once when I was doing some research for Mecca Day. I was like, all right. RX-782. Let's see if there's a three. Let's see. If, yes, there was. Yes, there right, is. Let's see if there's a four, five, six, seven. I think it goes up to like eight or nine, maybe even more. It would not at all surprise me if, uh, I don't know if it goes past seven, but it's been a, but they're, they're adding, they're adding new Gundams to the one year war all the time. All the time. <laughs> I mean, like the permit score eight. All of the all the GP mobile suits are also technically RX seventy eights. The Atlas is an RX seventy eight. There's so many RX seventy eights running around to the point it no longer makes any sense. And don't get me wrong, I love them. I love the seventh. Uh, I like the um, uh, the four and the five, the six, of course. All of those gaps have been filled. I'm just imagining that's the Don Draper meme when he's like has the the clipboard in front of like the in the conference room. It's like. What's the what the what is this mechanical designer's new idea that they're pitching Sunrise the RX seven eight nine? <laughs> and they're nodding it's their heads enthusiastically. That if that doesn't exist, like seven eight nine, like it's right there. It's true. <laughs> so returning back to G Witch here, Miorine says when she learns this, "You snake," addressing the horror that's acting as Prospera's surrogate. You can't share Gundam technology without my consent. She then criticizes Ghoul for not telling her Jaturk heavy machinery secret Gundam R&D. Ghoul tells her that this was news to him, too. Prospera suggests that they announce it was developed jointly between Gundarm Inc. and Jaturk. Then you can also promote your union to the rest of the group. I love this bit so much. I love how it's revealed that all these executives who pledged never to develop Gundams and even went so far as to establish a paramilitary organization with little oversight to root them out, are designing their own in secret. It's perfect. Chef's kiss perfect. It just goes to show that no amount of handshakes or PR campaigns will counteract or compensate for corporate greed. It's, it's paradoxical to think otherwise. Sarius, Sarius was the only true believer, right? Like, he's the only one who did not make a Gundam. 
Yeah. Yeah. And of course, it, what what happened? He got usurped by someone who does, right? Almost yeah. as if it were a matter of time. No can do, Miorine says. Gundarm Inc. won't be involved in mobile suit development. We decided that we use Gundam technology for medical purposes. Prosperous stresses that they need a track record, material accomplishments to point to, to win the presidential race. If you want to stick to your principles, you should use them in your concept. Please don't forget. To herself, and Ghoul, Miorine whispers that it's now her turn to fulfill her promise. All right, so the issue with hosting a weekly Witch for Mercury podcast and being terminally online, like I mentioned before, is that I really have to resist the urge to regurgitate all the great takes that inundate my feed each week, like hourly after an episode airs. It's very hard because um, the, sometimes the commentary is so well-worded, concise, and insightful that it like burrows a hole into my mind and it's never going to escape and it's never going to leave my mind. But I do, on that note, I have to shout out Dylan's, a friend of the show, former guest of the show, uh, Dev D Online. He had a great tweet. He perfectly captures Ghoul's Neanderthalic qualities. Uh, he writes, quote, He spends most of the episode kind of looking like a chump way in over his head, so I enjoyed this little beat where Ghoul conspicuously seems to clock that Miorine is obliquely talking about Suleta here. And then he adds on in the next tweet, Ghoul is pretty dumb, but he does understand. Protect Suleta. Could not get that out of my mind. It's very well worded. Okay, I'm I'm a big dummy, maybe. Is the promise the deal of Prospera, or is it her original promise to Suleta? Good question. I don't think we can really say one or the other, right? Yeah, because I mean, obviously, like, okay, so the the art of the show, this show makes it pretty clear that Suleta and Miorne's relationship is a central aspect of the show. I'm not going to argue that, like, I don't know, that's not coming back. That would be very silly from a storytelling perspective. But I am very curious because, like, Miorne does not explicitly talk about it. Or, or, you know, I don't think she's really explicitly talking about Suleta so much in this episode. So, you know, because I, I, and to be clear, I think you can persuasively argue this either way. I mean, I think that's pretty much what you, you said, Tom. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I just when I watched this, I was like, "Oh, well, this is totally just her talking about her fulfilling her end of the bargain with Prospera." And now, you know, Dylan makes a convincing statement here that she, the reason she's you know saying it to herself, Ghoul's understanding it. Like, he still understands the stakes, the score. The whole point is to kind of get get Suleta out of Prospera's grasp. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I was I was curious where y'all were on that. My my in, my instinctual read was uh, favoring the Suleta side of it. Same, but maybe that was a bit aspirational on my part. She's a business student, you know. I don't, as as Thaliarchus says all the time. <laughs> yeah, I've I, I've I've gone like completely full circle on Miorine. Like people, not that this is um, a, a competition, but I feel like people are not turning on her, but are less enamored with her than they were. But I was really cold on Miorine in like the first core, and now I'm. Uh, not necessarily backing her, but uh, I, I really dig her characterization. Yeah, just because she's maybe making dumb, bad, or naive decisions doesn't like make her less relatable as a character in person. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just that people are taking her actions as manipulative, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, it's one of those things that, like, oh, boy, I just wish I just wish they would have a conversation. 
Miorine asks Prospera where she is, to which she responds, grassly. Taken unawares, Miorine again expresses a shock of surprise. They were eager to chat, Prospera says, and they insisted on inviting me. Like I said last episode, Miorine is increasingly getting in over her head. Like, time and time again, she's taken surprise by the predictable actions of people she knows pretty well, or at least people who she should be able to read pretty well. Like, she's surprised that Jaturk's building a Gundam in secret. She's surprised that Prospera is forging alliances without her consent, despite the fact that she knows how manipulative she can be. She's surprised that Shadik's making a run for the presidency. Like, all of this speaks to her growing naivete, which is becoming increasingly more of an issue the longer she tries to go at this alone. Like, she has spent so much of her life in an ivory tower, and as a result, really isn't great at reading people. Like, since ditching Suleta and distancing herself from the rest of Earth House, she has no one around her to compensate for these shortcomings. Like, obviously, Prospera is not her friend. I think Miorene knows that. And I think, and I would say Ghoul's not really her friend either. Like, it's more of a friendship out of convenience, um, not out of mutual respect. Like, she's at a severe disadvantage without the support systems of Earth House. Just think, think back a few episodes ago when, was it her birthday they were celebrating? And they're all congregating around her. And, you know, even though she's still the boss, they were kind of working together. Like, she's lost that camaraderie um, with this trio. You know who else Miorena is the boss of? Prospera, how about you? So, how about you show some dang leadership? Okay, <laughs> that is your employee, and she's going and talking with uh, with Grassley. What's going on here? Non compete clause. Yeah, right. They would have those uh, in, in the Benner group for sure. No, I, I, I think it's uh, y- you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta have discipline. You know, if you're the boss, you gotta have some discipline here. And if someone needs discipline, it's Prospera's up on that list. Yeah, Prospera is just too valuable. She holds all the cards. Like, without her, uh, there's really no insight into viable Gundarm technology that doesn't kill you for using it. Although we know why that's possible, and it probably isn't very extensible. Could you imagine giving her a performance review? I would love, like, a bottle episode like that where it's just 22 minutes of, like, reviewing Prospera's performance as an employee. Mia Reyna brings her uh, performance review of her and Prospera is like, I'm glad that we had this meeting because I've taken this opportunity to give you, um, to review your performance as well. <laughs> that- yeah, she fl- she'd flip the table. Yeah. Here's my presentation on why you're bad and I should be in charge. Yeah, she turned on a monitor with a PowerPoint with a list of uh, talking points. Yeah, I'm really excited for, for Delling to wake up and see this. It's going to be... <laughs> Because there was that point, there was a moment in time where they started developing a rapport where, where Delling was, you know, coaching her on stuff to do and, you know, saying you did some good stuff here, you did some bad stuff here. Uh, and now, you know, she doesn't have that uh, that guidance. And <laughs> Delling's going to be like, you did what? I just can't wait for Delling to be like, wait, there's how many Gundams now? <laughs> Everyone's got one? This is my life's work we're talking about here. It's on a call with Dominicus. Like, you had one job. Yeah. Now they're sprouting out like weeds everywhere. So we get a scene change here. One of Belmaria's colleagues approaches her as she's working in a hangar. Any progress, he asks. Please give me a little more time to adjust the programming, Bell says. Looking at her tablet, the screen illuminated with the schematics of a new mobile suit. She asks about her assignment. 
He tells her it's a gun bit in a mobile suit form to expand Ariel's data storm network. It's called a gunned node. There's that trope that you were you were talking about before. It's literally a schematic on a tablet. Yeah, I'd love to see it. Are, are gun nodes basically Wi-Fi extenders? Like, I have a few in my house to expand my Wi-Fi network. Is that basically a gun node without, like, a sentient person inside it? And were the gunned vulvas also able to do this? That's, an, that's another good question. I think that's, a, that's a, something I was thinking about a lot because I really would love to know if these were made in response to the appearance of the gun vulvas. Uh, or, you know, was it always the case? Because I really, really want to know who made the Earthian Gundams. I think that's a question that some people are interested in the show and I'm really interested in. And to know the extent to which they, they differ... Uh, very just you know, just very fascinating. I'm just very curious because it, it almost feels like the gun node was in response, like that, like oh, well, why we can do this too now. My like running theory has been that somehow, like Prospera is trying to like play different play Earth and space against each other, because like I know in supporting material like the Cradle Planet story, she's away on business for protracted stretches on Earth specifically, and it's probably not an accident that the Donafold uses a Lafrith variants, even though they look very different from the original Lafrith. But again, I don't know if I should really be in the business of predicting anything anymore. But I mean, Prospera is devious enough to try something like that that she would have been setting up for who knows decades at this point. Maybe Cardo's in a cave somewhere cooking up some nonsense. All this techno babble is reminding me more and more of Star Trek. Like, is Quiet Zero the equivalent of turning the world into a holodeck so her holographic daughter can take on a physical form? Like, I feel like, increasingly, I feel like we're dealing with the EMH, the doctor uh, from Voyager. My impression is that Quiet Zero is just going to be some kind of like way to network all permit together. Mm-hmm. Now, theoretically, mean, really, that would be a really simple thing, right? But it would, if that's the case, then. You know, Ariel would be able to hop from anything that has permit instead of just the the aerial. So, so Spatians, correct me if I'm wrong here. I, I'm, I might be way out of my depth here. Spatians have permit. Most of them have permit in them so they could survive in space, right? Or am I just making that up? I don't think that's true, no. Uh, that permit is, as far as I know, that the only people who have had permit in them have been the the Gundam pilots that we've seen. Okay. Yeah, I, I've because we've seen those same marks in... Like if you remember, we in in the prologue when they were discussing the negative effects of data storms, we saw that mm. in people. We've seen that in Nerea and Sophie. We've seen that now in in Suleta and all the, all the all the kids, the replicates. So yeah, and like the the like the permit bl- or the uh, the data storm like blush that we see, I don't think indicates the presence of permit in someone's system. But when we've seen like when. Uh, I think he was like Elan was doing like a basically like a body like systems check when he saw him. There's like mm-hmm. rigid like lines that like flow through his body that have that same look to them. So I think those would be like permit implants and that allows him to withstand uh, higher permit levels. And the two Donald Fold Gundam pilots, I don't think it's been confirmed, but I would assume that they have the same thing. Yeah, I'm very curious if they have something similar. Yeah, that's what Five Lon alludes to in their conversation. Yeah. In a grassly meeting room, Prospera sits down with Shadik. We'd like to make Shinsei's gunned arm technology part of the group's core business. Hasn't Grassley been a denier of Gundams? Prospera asks. 
unconcerned about formalities or precedent, Shadiq insists that Grassley needs Gundams to restore its credibility. Probing further, Prospera asks about the status of the two Gundams used in the open campus incident. Shadiq says that they had built-in self-destruct protocols. If you wanted a Gundam, Prospera asks, building up to her point, wouldn't you try to obtain one even in a damaged state? Or could it be that their recovery would cause you some inconvenience? She'd make a great lawyer. I hate to say it, but she'd be very effective. This is what I imagine Succession is. I haven't seen an episode of Succession, <laughs> but just like rich, powerful people like uh, backstabbing each other and like um, making these subtle accusations at one another. The problem is I understand that show doesn't have any giant robots in it. Mm, yeah, big flaw. Yeah, that's uh, one, Brian Cox isn't going to appear on any uh, Mecha Day posts. This is a real game-recognized game moment here. Like, I don't compliment Shadik often, but... To his credit, he is better equipped to take on Prosper than Mirena is. Like, this is his area of expertise, court politics. If you think back to his past, like, he had to scheme his way to win Sarius's favor and eventually overthrow him. Shadik grew up in a snake pit. Mirena grew up in a greenhouse, which is why I'm so suspicious of him and his stated goal to mater- materially change conditions for Earthians. Like, he spent his whole life climbing the ladder to gain power. Would he or is he willing to give that away? I still think that Shadik's ultimate trump card is linking uh, Miorine and Guel to the Dawn of Fold. So I think mm. this is why he's resisting recovering those mobile suits because it might it might help them pull the like point the finger back at him. Because I mean it wouldn't be it wouldn't be that hard, right? He's got he's got Mika, and Guel was on Earth with the Dawn of Fold, and fought Earth forces. So it wouldn't be a huge stretch for him to just try and try and tie Gundarm to, to Earth rebel cells. And who knows, maybe that's what he'll even do when they go to Earth to begin with. Yeah, there's a Columbo figure in the show with just like a notebook with like Bob question mark on it. Right. I mean, he killed his father, right? What does that mean? You know? That's the thing, right? Like that's gotta be, he has to know somehow. Oh yeah, I have to assume he knows somehow. He has the he has that mobile suit's black box or something. Like he's got he's got something on everybody. I'm yeah, sure. a recorder on the ship, right? The the one that the Donafold are using or something. Right. Unannounced, Miorin and Ghoul walk in, dispensing with formalities. Ghoul asks Shadik what he's doing, dealing with Miorin's subsidiary without her permission. Canvassing, he says. I'm enlisting companies to support my election as president. Miorine, once again, is surprised. My marriage to you didn't pan out, Shadik tells her. While you were all dueling, I'd already earned Pale's support. Your opponents in the presidential race are two of the three branches. He reminds her that the vote is in two weeks. All right, so like, well, this is, we, Pimps and I were theorizing about this a few episodes back. Like, the Bennett president is voted into office. This seems, though, to be more like a Holy Roman Empire situation that's a deep cut steven (laughs) i guess i guess i'm sure some of our listeners can appreciate my references to uh ancient and archaic empires um so in the holy roman empire and i i knew this loosely but i had to go back and do some fact checking here and if you need context like germany medieval germany pre-modern germany germany before germany was unified in the 1860s but anyway in the holy roman empire there were only certain electors like designated 
like the equivalent in this timeline of designated companies that can vote in an emperor. I think this is a very fun reversal of, okay, I'm an American here, so I feel like I'm eating my words here, but I feel like this is a fun reversal of the democratic system. Like in Astacasia, corporations, not people, have a political voice. Um, Americans here can pause for laughter. And I looked it up. Like Currently, there are 157 members in the Benner group. I'm curious, do they all have voting privileges? Can only companies actively turning a profit vote, which would be very fun. Like if you think back to earlier in core one, we saw the Parnio company get the boot because they weren't bringing in money. I'm guessing they're out. I'm guessing they can't vote. And I'm also curious, are there other special parties who have a say? And I would love to see this explored in more detail. And I know we're probably not going to get that detail. And it wouldn't shock me if larger companies would incentivize smaller companies to vote with them. Or if they have more voting rights, like uh, their, mm. their votes are worth more. That would be that could be very yeah, fun if, it, if it's like vote like your voting power is equal to your you know profit or something. Yeah. So the the this, the for lack of a better term, the American vibes are off the chart here. <laughs> <laughs> That's been said before too. Um, I can't remember who said it, but the, like the vibes in Astacasia, it feels like an American high school, especially with you know considerations of gun violence, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, speaking of Ostacasia, meet back at the school. Suleta tends to Miorine's tomatoes as Choo Choo sits waiting outside the greenhouse. Doesn't this feel kind of weird? If if you got divorced, like, would you even be allowed back in the greenhouse? Good point. I could see why Suleta wants to go back oh, to the greenhouse. I guess I'm a little Suleta surprised wants to that, do it. <laughs> yeah. I'm a little surprised that Miorine uh, grants access, but maybe right. it's not I on her mind. I mean, I get the impression that Soleta still thinks that she and Mirena are friends, right? I guess. I don't know. Like, here's the, the thing that made it really vicious to me was at the end of the previous episode when she's like, actually, I was just using you as a shield the whole time. That to me was like, right. you know, that, that pushed it beyond, you know, the, the marriage was a sham too. Everything with you was a sham. Yeah. Mm. In that respect, it is a little, I don't know, clingy perhaps. I don't right. know. It makes I think it makes Suleta seem pathetic, right? A little bit. Yeah, she's uh, spending too much time on Miorine's Facebook or MySpace page. Yeah, which may <laughs> be the point also, to be clear. Like, you know, it may be the whole point is that Miorine isn't even thinking about this greenhouse while Suleta is yeah. doting on it. And we've already established that, like, Suleta is specifically trying to avoid, avoid dealing that emotional confrontation. Yep. Yeah, and she clings to routines as well. So Choo Choo asks, Suleta, point blank, aren't you pissed at her? She continues, she's succeeding the father she hated so much, and she threw you aside for that Jaturk blowhard. How selfish can she be? Suleta tells her that Miorine did nothing wrong. Blaming herself, she says that she broke her promise to Miorine. It was foolish of me to think I was ever a match for her. Classic, uh, classic lack of confidence, right? Yeah, I mean, it fits with their characterization so well. I, I keep saying this, like, I say this once an episode, I hate to be a broken record, and I know this is low-hanging fruit, but for as, me- and these, this is not a criticism, these aren't criticisms here, but for as melodramatic, satirical, and metaphysical as Witch's story can get, like, it's rooted in beats that are so grounded, relatable, and honest, which is why I think non-Gundam fans are so interested and taken with Witch because these beats reverberate on that level. Like, it makes complete sense that Suleta would blame herself. 
she has a very ordered perspective of the world. Like she takes comfort in the status quo and defines herself within hierarchy. If she were to blame Miorine, she would be challenging those safeguards or even outright rejecting them in a way that I don't think she's ready for yet. At least not now in this episode, maybe by the end of this episode, but not quite yet, I think. I'm still waiting for that moment. I mean, we all are, but like that moment that's kind of alluded to in the the ending sequence, right? Where where Soleta like casts off her mother's headband and becomes like a becomes like a full person and mm-hmm. is able to like embrace Mirine. Like that's what's that's what we all hope is coming, right? But right now she's not that person. I also want to call out Choo Choo here, draw attention to Choo Choo, because I think her approach in this episode is starting to really reflect a bit of a bit of an arc for her, which is in all the initial stuff, she's just kind of making these thoughtful glances at like the the lunch table at the beginning of the episode and just sort of navigating things. And then at this point, she says, Hey, like, what's up? What's the deal? And you know, ends up kind of driving the action of the episode, you know, towards towards the conclusion. Uh, it's definitely very interesting just to see Choo Choo kind of navigate her her convictions that, you know, <laughs> conflicts need resolutions. Uh, with exactly how you go about doing that. I'm very curious where they take Choo Choo's characterization, as I'll talk about later. That That's one of the things I'm more worried about in the show, but we'll get there. Interrupting Suleta's conversation with Choo Choo, Lauda, Felsi, and Petra, everyone's favorite tri- trio, everyone's favorite triumvirate, arrive. Both Miorine and the title of Holder belong to my brother now, Lauda announces. Nobody needs you anymore. You empty Mercurian wench. Nice guy. <laughs> this is such a tried and true technique. I'm not really criticizing Okochi here, but like he patterns this episode with representations of hollowness. Um, you got the empty greenhouse. Loud as insult just now. Got the Ariel's empty cockpit later. Five lines conversation with Norea, which is very explicit. You can consider the in-production gun nodes. And of course, we have the end of the episode when Suleta's literally and figuratively ejected from the womb. Like this episode asks us to consider how we make meaning in our lives. Like how do we fill that emptiness? Or even if that emptiness is needs to be filled in the first place. Um, and it's qu- literally the name of the episode, right? Yeah. yeah. Our empty selves. Okochi's very good about that. He titles the episode and there is going to be pattering patterns in the episode that reflect or in conversation with that title this is like a coachy code Gias. i know i'm invoking code Gias here people are gonna yell at me but code Gias season one where everything is so tightly written i need to revisit uh valve rave honestly as as daunting a prospect as that seems since like it seems like it may be that one might hew a little closer to it but I know then people I to listening to this <laughs> want me to talk about any Okochi work that isn't Code Geass. I would love to have the time to explore some of his other stuff. The first well, thing we did will talk be, about Planetus that time. Yeah, Planetus is the one I'll be watching next. I can't guarantee I'll be watching anything he's written in the future other than Turn A Gundam um, in the next few years, just because of lack of time. Okochi seems like a cool guy for as critical of Code Geass as I can be. Choo Choo, enraged, runs up to Lauda and grabs his collar. She's ready to clock him. I have no intention of fighting you, Lauda stoically says, diffusing the situation. You saved me during the open campus. Thank you. Lauda walks off. Felsi and Petra follow. Okay, what's up with Felsi here? We've been getting some lingering Felsi shots. Uh, a lot of people thought Felsi had death marks the one episode because 
there was a lingering shot of her looking up at one of the Turk mobile suits. Here we have her uh, kind of trailing behind, giving a you know a thanks as she she departs from the scene. A bunch of people suggested Choo Choo Felsey ship uh, is, is setting sail. I, I don't know if I'm that committed to the bit. Any strong feelings about Felsey here? It is worth noting, like you said, that she does say thank you too. It's funny. I haven't seen that much shipping of the two of them in my feed. It's just constant, and this isn't a criticism, but constant Nika and Sabina shipping. Yeah, people are fierce for that. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I respect it. I respect the hustle. Put any, put any two characters in a room. That's all you need to do. Mm-hmm. True. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I do love Sabina, though. Such style. So obviously, Lauda and Chuchu will end up together, and they will run Jaturk Industries. <laughs> I suggested that when uh, they did, um, Chuchu uh, stood in defense of Lauda, that they might be romantically pairing the two of them. I think right now the the common take is uh, that that the Lauda Petra romance is happening so that it will be more tragic when Lauda dies. Yeah, you need someone by the by the coffin right. if there is one. The casket, excuse me. Taken unawares by Lauda's comment, Choo Choo is momentarily at a loss for words until she stomps her feet, declaring, "That's got nothing to do with this, damn it." Suleta, defeated says Lauda is right. Though I never had anything to begin with, I called myself the holder and the groom. It was all a mistake. Sobbing, she asks, why didn't I realize it before now? Chuchu says that's nonsense. Now grabbing Suleta's collar, Chuchu tells her that they're going to see Miorine. That was a good mid-episode point right there. She said, we're going to Miorine episode. You know, that was a good episode. Yeah. yeah. It's funny, like whenever, whether she's dealing with a school bully or a misguided friend, Choo Choo responds the same by angrily grabbing them by the collar. I really do wonder where the show is going to land on Choo Choo's anger, whether it's going to temper her rage or justify her grievances. I am very curious about this and a little concerned, to be honest. Mostly so far, I think she's just been played off as like endearing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like it hasn't really. It hasn't really steered her wrong yet. She has the, the audience. We love to see it. Yeah. She hasn't had the chance to like cause damage. Right. Cause that's the thing I think that we'll need to like evaluate if she actually follows through, you know, yeah. if, if she had let Lauda die on, on during the, the rumble or something like, what well, what would that have been like? But we're not there or like yet. Maybe she'll, or maybe it'll cause her to go too far in a way mm-hmm. that she doesn't even like realize she's capable of. Right. Yeah. She has a mobile suit pilot after all that could happen. And they could follow Miorine to Earth. That could happen. That'll be that. Mm-hmm. That would be very spicy, of course. Yeah, PMC. It's a, it's sad you're not gonna be on next week's episode. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm probably not gonna be. I think we're gonna have. Um, you're gonna be with uh, with some some folks to do. But I, I'm not. Unfortunately, uh, <laughs> if I were driving somewhere, I would I would just take everything with me. But uh, alas, uh, I do not want to carry all of my equipment on an airplane. <laughs> I don't want to check bags just to record a podcast. I'm sorry, Steven. I'm not that's, that that's committed. Trust me. Don't worry. There's a chance I'm not even on the G-Witch finale, depending how my mouth is healing after a minor <laughs> surgery I've scheduled. But we'll see. But anyway, when I get back from the quote-unquote commercial break, Choo Choo debriefs the rest of Earth House on her intentions to take Suleta to the head office to meet with Miorine. She instructs Martin to hold down the fort while the rest of Earth House prepares to disembark. Till tells Choo Choo that she's changed. Aaliyah agrees. 
You've always chosen fist over talking things out. What happened? Choo Choo replies, I thought about what Nika would do. When those Jaturk punks thanked me earlier, I think I finally understood how Nika feels. All right, so before I address that, I do want to talk about Earth House real quick. Like, I think that this episode gives us our best look of the dormitory yet. Like, we get a nice establishing shot from an aerial point of view. And, like, we see basically the entirety of the dorms. And this has been said before, but I think it bears repeating. It exists in such contrast to the ornate Jaturk dormitory or the very chic opulence of Grassley House. It's just a warehouse, like a segregated space that physically signifies that Earthians are an underclass, or at the very least marginalized. It reminds me of when a school is like having construction done, and some classes will be like in a makeshift tent, not a tent, but like a makeshift building that they just threw up. Um, similar vibes here. Yeah, it really is. You can you can tell it's separate, almost to the point where you, know, you begin speculating on like. Was it originally for a different purpose or, you know, something along those lines? I can almost imagine supplemental material being like, yes, this was, you know, originally just a spare mobile suit hanger or something to that yeah, effect. Yeah, it looks like a hanger is what I was thinking. Yeah, they kept all their, like, mobile suit scraps there. Yeah. Demi-trainer heads and stuff. That sounds spooky and great, actually. <laughs> Politically, like I mentioned, I'm a little worried about how Choo Choo's characterization is going to go from here. I do wonder if the show is going to offer a third ideological perspective to bridge the gap. So I feel like it's the same conversation we've been having. We have Norea on one side, all Spatians must die. And Nika's let's, this is a bit of an over, like an oversimplification, but like let's be friends mentality. I feel like hers is almost like the grin and Barrett don't stand out too much. Kind yeah. Of yeah. Very, for lack of a better term, liberal perspective. I don't need the show to, so maybe the show doesn't back a single political perspective. That's fine. Gundam shows rarely do. And for the most part, that makes Gundam shows richer as a text. I, I just, for some characters, or I guess for the show as a whole, I just hope it doesn't delegitimize violence as a means to combat oppression. My understanding of it is more that they just have, they, they each are subject to similar oppression and they have different survival strategies. Mm. That's a good point too. Yeah, I really definitely feel like the the fact that Choo Choo has identified kind of, I guess, um, you know, negotiating these different points, Choo Choo feels like the person most likely to sort of try to, if there's going to be a different perspective, to arrive at a different perspective. Because I, I have to imagine she will learn the shortcomings of Nika's perspective soon if she tries to wholly adopt it. Yeah. I feel like we're on the precipice right, and she doesn't, of that. She doesn't know how far Nika's had to go. Mm-hmm. and what a poor situation it's put her in right i fear for martin though like, <laughs> we've got a we've got a fucking home alone situation on our hands here like i hope yeah, nothing bad af- happens to him afraid for him for uh for the entire season now waiting for that other shoe to drop and we got a lot of him this episode it wasn't just like this comedic bit like you know lock the door when you go to bed martin it's hey you got this scene with the confessional too it's a lot of screen time Meanwhile, back in their safe room, Norea, Fivelon, and Nika remain hunkered down. Even though he's established a connection between Grassley and the Dawn of Fold, Fivelon tells Norea not to worry. Despite how I look, I'm pretty tight-lipped. Nika remarks that he seems different from the Elan she knew. Fivelon confirms her suspicions. I think everyone's on board with Fivelon now. I saw a bunch of memes basically saying, you know, we love this guy now. We hated him at first, but now we're all in. He's such a piece of shit. I love him so much. Like, he does not care about any of this at this point. He's just done with it. 
He's a piece of shit who hates all the people you hate, which makes him. You so want to talk much about fun. someone with a survival strategy? It's this guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. PMC has said it many times before, but he's going the distance. Cut to everyone's least favorite character, OG Alon, sometimes referred to as Master Alon, who's lecturing the Pale Crones. You should have nominated me as a presidential candidate. Nugan replies, it's not yet time for you to take the stage. And we cut back to Five Lon, who continues to lecture Nika. Pale uses its own unique AI to select the company's leaders. The one who received the top grade was the real master, Alon Saris. But when these stupid bride-catching games began, he needed a backup who could pilot a mobile suit. We still, there's so much we still don't know about how Pale works. This is like the first indication we've really even had what makes Elan special at all. Like all of the other, I guess like as the audience, maybe we just assume that he's like a potential heir to Pale, but all the other heirs that we know are like literal children of the current CEOs. And Pale has this weird like quadumvirate of androgynous old women who all kind of look the same. And even Elan has like, similar hair color and like eye color to them so like what's the deal here exactly like we're just a lot we don't know about them like so even this like this even qualifies as like a pale info dumb this is like the most we've learned about them yet it was really good to see his uh i mean i'm gonna call it a character sheet you know his grades his rankings and it's like wow you're really good at everything except piloting a mobile suit Right, and the only thing we've known so far about Elan is, like, his thing is that he's a... And obviously, we're talking about the the fake Elans, but, like, he's supposed to be a really good mobile suit pilot. And as far as we know, that's all he was to Pale. So the fact that we... Again, the first time we've learned anything about the original Elan at all, besides the fact that he exists. Mm -hmm. Those Pale crones. So fucked up. (laughs) I'm ready ready for Macbeth every time I see them. We gotta kill a few of them off. Come on now. (laughs) If you kill Martin, at least kill two pale crones. Elaborating. So we're going back to the scene here. Elaborating. Fivelon says, We were initially guinea pigs used to master Gundam technology. Pilots implanted with resistance to data storms. That's us. The enhanced persons. He once again stresses that anyone who pilots a Gundam will die, but acknowledges that the Mercurian girl and her Ariel seem to be excep- exceptions to that rule. Again, not understanding that seemingly anyone can pilot the aerial without drawback because Elan 4 was able to do that no problem. We still don't know what actually makes Soletta special, if anything. She's she Palpatine's daughter. That's what makes her special. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it turns out, yeah, she maybe sort of is. Um, right. yeah, I wanted to throw one other comment about, about Pale, which is just that I saw someone, because it's stuck in my head, I wish I could attribute the person who coined this but they felt that pale might be like a like an ai cult or, or something to that effect just because of the, right. the prominence of ai decision making uh and how they go about things and the fact that we can't otherwise you know uh discern any familial ties or, or other structure for for how they operate uh i was definitely i for a while i thought that they were bound for an early exit that that shadik was mm-hmm. just gonna start once you know once vim died and Sarius is off the board. Delling's in a coma. Kind of, the Crones are the last like original leaders that are still standing on their two feet. 
So I kind of thought that they would just get shuffled off rather than us learning the mystery of Pale. Well, if Shadik if Shadik succeeds in his power play, they might be very well next on the chopping block. He yep. doesn't seem like a guy who likes to share power. No. So I, I definitely, I, even if the early exit theory wasn't quite correct, I definitely still think that they their time is short because all of their peers uh, are are indisposed one way or another. The AI cult thing is an interesting idea. It almost makes you, the thing that's always been in the back of my head, like I mentioned that they all have like similar features. Like what if they're all like basically like vat grown, like gene selected uh, babies that like the AI picks like certain traits for them sort of thing, right? Like, like it perpetuates itself by creating human stewards. Yeah. They, like they could, I mean, yeah, chances are pale, probably eugenicists. Let's be honest here. Right, it wouldn't shock me. Yeah, they just came I mean, straight they, they out. They certainly like a 3D have printer. nothing against uh, sacrificial children. I mean, who doesn't? <laughs> we should have a running bit on this podcast with each new guest. Like the first question I ask: name how many of the pale crones can you name? <laughs> That's a, it's you... a big it's a big goose egg for me. <laughs> I have never known their names, and probably will never learn them. I didn't start like putting them in my notes until like two episodes ago. Now I have to look. I just call them, I've always just thought of them as like the pale quadumvirate. The most fucked up group of four people you're ever going to meet. Yeah. Nora. We know that they at least have a flair for the dramatic, right? Remember the big. Uh, oh, yeah. The, big the presentation. Coming out party. Yeah. Their huge head. So, so we, we really liked your vibe meme, except it's those four. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want those four to like your vibe. No. You should you should reinspect your vibe, if that's the case. Norea, in no mood for idle chatter, remarks that Five Lon sure knows sure knows how to run his mouth. He asks her why she pilots a Gundam. You're hollow inside, so you tell yourself it's for the Earthian's sake. This elicits, as do so many things, a violent response from Norea, who rushes at him with a pencil. I want to kill every last one of you, Spatians. Holding her back, Fivelon goads her, asking, You don't really want to pilot a Gundam either, do you? She tells him to shut up. Let's be honest with one another, since both our lives are so cheap. I think it's really, it's worth pointing out Norea's choice of weapon, and we probably talked about this before, but of course she's using her pencil, which she uses to draw with frequently. Like, this is a future in which writing objects are rendered effectively obsolete. We see that data is compiled in tablets, and communication is conducted via cell phones. And, like, obviously the pencil could be a nod to the material conditions on Earth. This is something that, like, you pointed this out, and this kind of reminded me of... Uh, it's it's a myth, the old parable that's supposed to be about, like, uh, like the inefficiency of government spending, where, like, spent millions of dollars to make a, a pen that writes in zero gravity, but the Soviets just made a pencil, right? Which is... It is a myth, like the Soviets also used a space pen because graphite can short circuits. But the idea that it's like a writing implement that you could use both within Earth's gravity and in space, I don't know, maybe there's something to that, but it's just what I thought of. I took a class, a history class in the Soviet Union, and my professor would always try it out. Soviet jokes are the best. Like they, The Soviets perfected them like standing in bread lines for a long time, but like they would tell jokes to pass the time. But if you like, you get the references, hysterical. They're so deadpan. Going back to the pencil bit, there's something so obstinate and rebellious about it. Like, if you think about it more philosophically, she refuses to conform to the industrial 
or digital expectations set by spatial elites. Like, she's not a cog in the machine. Bloodthirsty though she may be, she engages in a mode of production that is her own, creative and unmanufactured. She definitely also fits into, uh, and we I think we posted a, a tweet to this effect, where there is a, a, a sort of tradition of people killing other people with pencils and pens. Um, thinking, you know, you can think of uh, Bourne, the Matt Damon is Bourne. Uh, you can think of John Wick, who infamously has a reputation for killing people with a pencil. Heath Ledger's Joker. Um, even um, in Gross Point Blank, I think someone gets murdered with a pen as well. So, you know, it's kind of a, an, a bit of an action movie bit, which I also point out too, because the choreography in this scene is not that bad either. It is mightier yeah. than the sword, after all. Very true. Yeah, this is like a, this is our action set piece for this episode. Nika going at five <laughs> line with the pencil, or uh, Norea. Norea, who did I say? Nika. You said Nika. Oh man, I made that the would worst. be incredible. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is that two episodes in a row now that we've had a pencil stabbing or attempted pencil stabbing? Yeah, I think I think Norea has tried it both episodes. Yeah. I think they're gonna do it every every episode that she's still in that room. Yeah, I guess is this just the one pencil? Does she have more? That's a great question. Yeah, if she if she broke the pencil, does she have a sharpener? <laughs> the, the skulls of her victims, <laughs> right in the eye socket. She's, she's scrappy. She can figure something out. Yeah, she is resourceful. Meanwhile, on a call with his managers, Shadik stresses his commitment to the syst- systematic sell-off of Grassley suits to Earthian buyers. They protest, arguing that they're selling their products at too much of a markdown. The Earth companies on the list are first priority he declares before ending the call. Afterwards, he tells Hanau that no one within the companies are the wiser. As if getting an all-clear, Hanau says she'll file a report with the Space Assembly League. Look, I'm, I'm all, I just want to make this clear, I'm all for Earthians getting weapons to throw off their spatial pressures. I think that's rad. What concerns me here is the person signing the checks and what sort of reciprocal relationship that could create. Um, this reminds me a bit of America sending the Mujahideen weapons during the Afghan-Soviet war. Oh, yes, of course. The the brave allies that uh, Rambo 3 was dedicated to. <laughs> like, because America does this all the time. It's just not the Afghan-Soviet war, but like the idea, and again, I'm not necessarily against it in this case, but, you know, I want the Earthians to get weapons. That's cool. But does this indebt these parties to Shadiq? Obviously, he can't funnel weapons directly into the Dawn of Fold because that will raise too many eyebrows at Grassley. So the, uh, there's obvious reasons why there are earthen companies getting this tech, but it does concern me, like, the political perspectives of these earthen companies. And also the idea that this can be some sort of cure-all for complex socio-political issues. Because now you have all these people, perhaps competing companies, with all these weapons. And the idea that it's just going to create, like, a, a Cold War-style easing of tensions is a bit laughable in its simplicity like band-aid for a shotgun wound that sort of thing more than anything i think this is just i mean this is just he wouldn't be doing this if it wouldn't work to his favor whether it's to create chaos or to create like a i don't know like an unsteady peace it's for purely selfish reasons (laughs) he doesn't care anything about the plight of the people on earth that we know of uh, whenever someone says like unsteady peace or unjust peace, I think immediately of the Pat Labor Two monologue and starts mm-hmm. like playing in my mind. Yeah, God, Pat Labor Two rules so much. And in many ways, like I mean, 
part of the theme of Pat Lieber too was how like the idea of of war was something that was like distant from industrialized nations like Japan. Like it was almost like an abstract. And I feel like the approach to war in The Wish for Mercury is kind of uh, is dealing with that, right? Like most people don't have, uh, or most people in Japan anyway, don't have a, don't know someone who went to war or something, but they know all mm. about, you know, being a salary man or, or corporate intrigue or something like that. It's much less abstract is what I'm saying. Yeah. In light of Shadik's maneuverings, Miorine, Prospera, and Ghoul confer in person. Miorine expresses her surprise that Shadik would team up with Pale. As if on cue, Prospera turns on the monitor to a news station broadcasting a report on the escalating tensions on Earth. Armed Earthian groups have begun attacking Benerit group facilities. I was wondering about this, actually. So, like, we established that that they're selling grassly like uh, facilities to earth companies, but it is probably too soon for grassy weapons to be in their hands. Right. Cause I did notice some hindrays there. And I, I wonder like, are those supposed to be that the, the people in open revolt are using mobile suits or, or not? I, I'm kind of gravitating towards no though. Cause I feel like we also saw Jaturk and pale mobile suits as well. Yeah. I mean, I think it's something definitely to keep an eye out for, but my feeling definitely is that like it's not not yet, or at least not like the sales would need to change a few more hands, and then we'll see the mobile suits in you know the clutches of people like Donafold. Right, like the mobile suits we saw a few episodes ago. Uh, the Predoros is not made by any of the three main branches. It was made by a uh, uh, like a smaller company. I think it was like Hanumat or something like that. It's 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 in the other MS section on the website. Which is crazy to me because it's such a cool robot, but oh, it's such a rad robot. Yeah. So I think I don't know. Maybe it's it's probably safe to assume that we're seeing the forces of the the Benaret group being mustered against the protesters. Yeah, yeah. Because it also identified as attacking attacking Benaret group facilities. Yeah. It's worth pointing out here that Prospera turns on the all front news network, uh, like the Fox News of the Ad Stella timeline. This is where Ron DeSantis would uh, announce his presidential campaign on the all-front news network. Like, I'm sure Prospera picked this channel on purpose. Like, maybe she's playing into Murine's space and biases. Like, she's basically space royalty. Or perhaps she wanted to weaponize the hyperbolic spin of a reactionary news organization. Like, whatever the case, she needed something dramatic enough, like, to goad Murine into action. Yeah, it is really funny because uh, all the Chirons in this are like, what about the spatial economy? <laughs> you know, and every single one. It's like teenage casualties. We don't care. It's about the economy. Yeah, she didn't turn on Conan O'Brien who makes that core one appearance. <laughs> oh, the, get Conan for the dub of G-Witch because that's totally him. <laughs> I don't know if he had any speaking role, lines. There's a bit here that I had trouble parsing. Press, well, as, so well, let me start with my, my, my take with what's going on. Like, as I understand it, protests have been breaking out across Earth in response to Spatian hegemony. There's a city, Quinn Harbor, um, that's under the oversight of the Benerit Group. And here in the city, the unrest has intensified to such a point that the Benerit Group had to intervene and crack down with force. This only exacerbated the situation, and now Quinn... 
harbor is a powder keg set to explode. Am I right with that analysis, you think? Yes, I think. So the thing that is unclear to me is whether there is implied a connection between the actions during the ghoul episode and this unrest, or if this unrest is more broad and it has to do with the unrest that we saw, for example, during that one news break very early on in core one. Um, I'm uncertain about the direct connection between what we saw a few episodes ago. I, my assumption is that it's broad unrest. Yeah. But Prospera says, this is what I couldn't really parse. There's this mysterious there, like they're protesting the lack of corporate governance regarding this terrorism. It was enforcing unfair security measures in the name of criminal investigation. Who's the there that's protesting the lack of corporate governance? Because it seems that people are protesting too much corporate governance in the form of a a martial crackdown. I was thinking, uh, is she maybe referring to the news anchors? That's what I thought too, maybe. Right. Like the terrorism in this uh, in this instance, I've is probably her talking about like violence. Yeah, it's like viewer, like um, the people the people who are concerned about the economy feel there needs to be more more you know skulls being right. cracked. The thing that makes sense to me, it's like the reason for this unrest is that uh, this city is being crushed under the boot of these corporations, and uh, of course the answer is more boots. Yeah, the line that threw me for a loop is it was enforcing unfair security measures in the name of a criminal of in criminal investigation and if she was picking up on the all front news network talking points it would she would say it's enforcing i guess justified security measures in the name of cracking down the criminal investigation bit threw me for a loop which i guess is just them cracking down on unrest yeah the only thing i think is that the criminal investigation it refers to the attack on the school which is why i thought maybe there was some connection some direct connection but again i'm, I'm not mm. sure because that, that ostensibly be that was why the Bennett group forces came down was, you know, criminal investigation. Yeah. Is Quinn Harbor in Japan then? Quinn Harbor sounds like, I don't know, like a small, like city, like city by the sea in like Maine. We haven't had a ton of like, we haven't like seen a map at any point, right? Where things are. I don't think so. I mean, Earth's a big planet. We don't know where things are relative to each other at this point from the stuff we've seen. A lot of the locations seem to be Japan based on commentary I've seen online. Mm, okay. But I'm not sure if that information has been verified by any supplemental uh, material. I feel like my real question is, will every core-ending bloodbath take place in a Q location? Plant Quetta, Quinn Harbor? Mm. That's, yeah, that's a good point. Pour one out for Sony's Project Q. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, then we'll have our last showdown in Quiet Zero. Yeah. Mm. So as they're having the conversation, as they're watching Fox News, Ghoul adds, their anger won't be ended by violence. In that case, Murine says, why don't we try ending it? She suggests speaking directly to the protesters. If we can calm them down, that'll be our track record. Prospera urges her that she'll need to make a show of force or she won't be able to negotiate on even terms. Miorine decides to bring the aerial, sans weapons, as a show of both strength and peace. It will provide a concept of our principles. We'll demonstrate through this negotiation that I and Gundar Mink, that the Benner group of the future, will save life without fighting. 
I've seen a lot of comparisons online between Miorine's intentions to peacefully intervene and Euphemia's failed attempt to establish a special administration or a special administrative zone, the SAZ, in occupied Japan in Code Geass. Not to always bring this back to Code Geass, but one important thing to consider here are Miorine's intentions. She's not doing this out of ideological concern. She kind of like walks back into this. She's doing this to bolster her presidential run. And by extension, I think she's doing this for Saleta. Like, she's not a Relina Peacecraft. This is all obviously going to backfire. Like, I, in this regard, I have no concerns that the show is under any illusions that this is the correct course of action. Well, what even is the course of action? What actually is her plan? Also another good point. She's <laughs> at her. She's never been more out of her element than she is now. It's basically like, here's the proposition for me right now. All right. There is growing unrest. She never questions whether or not she should be the pe- person to intervene, but she's going to fly down in the aerial and do something. And she says, I'm, gonna not, I'm not going to bring a knife or a gun to this fight. And what does she do? She brings the biggest gun imaginable. Right. Like, why, why would people on Earth care about the dancing robot? <laughs> she can sing. She can fly. She can dance. She can negotiate right. ceasefires. They haven't seen... They haven't seen that commercial, and if they did, whatever, it's branding. Who cares? You made a TikTok about a giant robot. We see those all the time, and they make our lives worse. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely think this was the part that I feel like I saw a lot of people kind of bouncing off of or like being sort of concerned about like what is being set up here, because I think think we can all agree that it's going to fail, but like the question is why should we believe that Mirane thinks it might succeed? Which I We've think been what, giving no reason to believe it would succeed because, again, we don't have any clue, any clue what she's going right. to do. Exactly. Yeah, and the yeah. only thing that we do know is, like, we're going to show them our... The, we have the coolest robot, and that's why the the bureaucrats back home should vote for me. Like, I don't, I don't have trouble understanding what we're supposed to take away from this. Another thing I wanted to... This is kind of adjacent, but... You know, the the genesis of this is that she wants to improve their track record. The uh, translation, the subtitles uses the term track record. Uh, I find that kind of like a clumsy term to be using. You know, I'm surprised they don't go with, um, like, reputation is kind of the, what I thought they would go, or brand. Well, it's, it's like, it's the same thing that Prosper was saying earlier with the, the Schwarz set, right? It's supposed to call back to that. Okay, so is that, that the... Yeah, that they're using they're using that term sort of yeah because they, again they're they're like yeah. how can you bolster reputation? We'll say you had a partnership with us the whole time, right? And that'll yeah that'll invoke sort of the the reputation. I'm just curious. Right. Like, her, if her deal is that she wants to instead of making a new uh, a new Gundam, a new mobile suit, they're going to use I guess the one they have mm-hmm. and show that they have the tools that they already need. Right. I don't know. It's we don't have enough details to say one way or another that this is in any way thought through. I'm assuming that the next episode will hopefully reveal that, but yeah, the episode we don't have any reason to have way. any confidence in the. Yeah, we don't have any reason to have confidence in this plan. Right, right, yeah. Cut to Lauda walking the palatial halls of Jaturk House as he overhears a group of younger students singing Ghoul's praises. I feel and PMC has already mentioned this several times. I feel like we have another sacrificial lamb here. We got. Martin, potentially. Kananji, as we'll talk about. Lauda. Who's it going to be? Oh, Lauda. Lauda's said there. Are you kidding me? I, I, and again, I, I'm sticking to my guns. I still think Shadik is going to drop the bombshell. Lauda will be so shocked that whatever lingering injury he has 
will cause him to come on the spot. That is my that is my call, and I'm sticking to it. If uh, if Shadik uses the like the revelation that Guel killed his father, uh, it could be a good way to oust Guel entirely and install Lauda as his puppet. True. Mm, that's a good read. Yeah, I would say I would also lump Ghoul in there because I think Ghoul is completely disposable at this point. If I feel like they've really flattened his characterization, um, so we I get we get no interiority. It seems like his perspective after the incidents on Earth haven't changed, and you can make an argument for why that's the case. But I feel like I think he's a- intentionally flattened himself, though. Yeah, maybe that's like you said earlier, Tom, like a survival instinct. Well, I think he's like again, he's trying to play the he's trying to play the role that is or that he believes like would have been worthy of his father what his father would have wanted from him right so he's like toned down a lot of his what made him him mm-hmm. i mean he he cut his hair like pretty obvious visual metaphor there yeah he's trying to be more mature trying to project more he is generally liked better he's more charismatic but yeah i don't think that this is uh i don't think that version of guel is the real guel i think he's holding himself back and we are all, we saw it from the beginning of this episode. He's not pulling it off well either. Yeah, with barely any screen time in this business. episode. Meanwhile, Fang, doing her best Scully impression, accosts Belmaria as she makes her way through a zero-G hallway. Brandishing her phone with her credentials as clear as day on the screen, Fang asks, Do you mind if we have a word? I don't know where this is going, but I'm excited. <laughs> I'm this is I'm most excited about this. Give yeah. me like an interrogation scene for 22 minutes. You got a cool logo too. I'm trying to bring it up on the screen here, but um, you got a little like FBI logo for the, the little United Nations there. Who's um? I forgot to look it up. Include him in the notes, but Fang's not alone. The other dude's there too. Right, Goost Goostin, <laughs> Goostin, Goostin Parch. Go- <laughs> I'm dead yes. serious. That is absolutely. I'm on. I'm on the character. Page. I started bringing up the character page before I even get on the call at this point. You're wise to do that. Yeah, but he's there too. I, I yeah. I'm super curious where this is going. And of course, you have to consider who called them in. Shadik, or I guess Hanau acting on Shadik's behalf. Right? She called. Well, she- no. That the Space Assembly League report is just the normal financial report, isn't it? Or do we think Shadik was no, I actually? Think, I sick- think they are. I think they're the Feds. Yeah, because remember earlier when when Fang was like, "I'm investigating Shinsei." Mm-hmm. I think this is just follow up on that. I don't think this is Shadi yeah, okay. ratting out Shinsei. Yeah, I don't think this is connected to that. Gotcha. I guess crossing my lines there. Yeah. I think I think the idea is that the Space Assembly League are like the Feds, and so when Shadik is doing all this maneuvering to mm. transfer capital to Earth. He needs to avoid drawing the attention of the Feds. It's it's like you're doing a financial okay. crime, and you're saying. Yeah. We can't let the SEC catch on to us. Mm-hmm. All right. Now I'm on the same page. While Belmaria is presumably being brought in for questioning, Martin stops by one of Ostacasia's counseling rooms. Racked with guilt, Martin confesses his sins to an attentive horror unit. I learned my friend was committing a crime, and I turned her in. A crime is a crime. As head of the house, I wanted to protect everyone. I've done nothing wrong. I did the right thing, didn't I? Without warning, the screen behind horror opens up, revealing Cecilia. You're a double-crossing little rat, aren't you? And the of crowd goes wild. Stitches. So the whole reason that Nika got picked up by the Grassley crowd was because Martin told 
the corporate security front that Nico is doing a crime and then they caught her, right? Is that the idea then? Because it sounds like Martin thinks that Nico is picked up by the cops when she's actually been picked up by, by Shadik and company. That was my read. Okay. I got to say the Ad Stella uh, Haros, they're so versatile. Yeah, they need a little jingle. They need a little commercial. <laughs> Look at all the shit they can do. Swiss Army Knife. It is funny just how overtly this room is just like a, a confessional. <laughs> to the point yeah. there's even someone actually behind like a curtain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about this too. Like I found, I, Originally I found it amusing that Ostakasi would dedicate the space or even allocate the funds to provide any sort of counseling for its students. Like then my mind started to wander. Like maybe this was the result of a grant or a donation from a third party. But then I thought to myself, well, these rooms aren't staffed by medical professionals nor do they provide any sort of worthwhile therapy to students, and like no offense to this horror unit. And as Tom pointed out, they function more as confessional booths, which can only help the administration source information from the student population. So it works in their favor. Miorin meets with Rajan, who's not entirely pleased with her plan. I'd like to have some of my men join you for your own security, he insists. Enter a saluting Kananji Avery, who's more than willing to be the head of Murine's security detail. Ghoul seems surprised to see him. The uh, The tone threw me off here. The music is much more playful. I feel like the tone is more comedic. I feel like the scene is a little dissonant with the rest of the episode. Do you feel like Kanaji's character design has changed? Oh, In yeah. This episode, his, yeah. His eyes seem, like, bigger and cuter. I noticed it right away. Like, um... I don't know if y'all remember, I think it's in the last episode of Gundam Unicorn, like Alberto Vist shows up after he's had like a change of heart and immediately his eyes are like twice as big to show that. I don't think that this is doing the same thing here. It's just like, he looks noticeably like he has cute eyes now in a way he didn't before. It's odd. Yeah, I was thinking like, like maybe the show here is trying to lull us into a false sense of security before pulling the rug out from under us. Like, will Kananji be a catalyst causing the situation to spiral out of control? Because remember, Kananji killed Prospera's husband, Ari's dad. What's Sadim? Nadim? Yeah. One of those two? Nadim, I think. Nadim, not Sadim. Yes, Nadim. Um, like, how will the Ariel and or Prospera react? Like, do they know? Like, the Ariel doesn't need a pilot anymore. It can act on its own. Yeah. Shit can go down. I think the I think the Ariel is the real wild card here because you you can re- remember Rajan's reaction to Prospera <laughs> where he was like terrified of her, thought she was going to pull a gun. You know, he was real spooked by by seeing Prospera. Kananji, I you know, seems to have become kind of just like a middle-aged goofball after his early days as an ace pilot and you know he's he's he might bump up against you know a, a you know a, cre- a a child that remembers his father being remember the a child remember her father being killed and then you know running into this guy and also you'd probably imagine that Ari's memory is very sharp you know like yeah. probably able to hold those hold that information a bit better than your ordinary brain so uh, can, at the Kanaji same time is though. Very right. At the same time, though, when Aerie, uh 
took out all of those Dominicus mobile suits, she literally didn't know what she was doing. Mm-hmm. Mm. So it's a question of like, I mean, I, I I could see Prospera knowing like literally who the like pilot of the mobile suit that killed her husband would be. Like, she would be the type of person to be that meticulous. Yeah. Who knows if if Ari has any clue? Yeah, that was my read too. It doesn't seem like there's a limit to what Prospera knows. I feel like she yeah. knows everything. She definitely knows a lot more than any of us do. She she gets the scripts ahead of time. Okochi <laughs> writes them and sends them right to her. When they arrive at the head office, the Earth House Brigade is barred entry by a Haro unit who informs them that they need an appointment. Prospera gets word that Suleta has arrived just as her daughter is getting into a spacesuit to go find Miurine. During her search, she stumbles upon the aerial with its cockpit conspicuously open. Relieved to be back in the comforting embrace of the aerial, she takes it for a ride. As the bits circle the aerial, she soliloquizes. I never thought I'd see you again. Miss Miorine said she didn't need me anymore. Now it can't be helped. I'm the one who broke our promise. I've moved forward. Like Mom says. But I don't know what to do. I'm not the holder anymore, and I don't have to duel. I study with my friends, and we can chat together over lunch. But even then, with Miss Miorine gone, it hurts not being able to see her. Suddenly, the aerial glows blue, and Aerie appears out of the data storm, distorting Suleta's field of vision. Yeah, all of a sudden, it seems like they're in like a, a mobile suit hangar of some kind, and we we specifically see the Lafrith that that Aerie appears on top of. Yeah, shoutouts to one of my favorite mobile suits in G-Witch. Glad to see it. Ari recounts a story from Suleta's childhood when Prospera gave her some hot chocolate and candy. My heating unit was broken from the solar storms, so you took your half-empty mug and held it up to my cockpit. You said it would warm me. Cryptically, Ari, now flanked by other Repley children, tells Suleta that the door is open. We don't need the key anymore. The key is you. Ari can only live outside... Aerie can only live inside the data storm, so you filled it in for her. Aerie has no physical form, so you filled in for her. Aerie's body, her arms and legs, her extended consciousness, that's us, the children of the coven. Shoutouts to my favorite um, non-existent JRPG title, Children of the Coven. <laughs> Probably like a dungeon crawler. That's like the, yeah, that's like the Valkyrie profile spinoff, right? Coven of the Plume, Children of the Coven. Yeah, in my mind, I'm thinking like, I, I like it. Nipponichi of America published Dungeon Crawler. That's what's in my mind. I think I'm pulling on something that actually exists here. Suleta's confused. Getting to her point, Ari says, Quiet Zero will create a world where Ari can live. So we don't need you anymore, Suleta. So I guess that this is supposed to reveal what, if anything, made Suleta special, that she was meant to take. Airy to a certain point, and she has now reached that point, so let us no longer necessary. Like they said, she was the key. So is there something else to her like that she can bring to the table? I'm assuming that she, there will be, and we'll find out. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I can think of is, is sort of the question of, like, was the thing that made Airy so special in the first place some inequality? Like, was it that she was a child, or was it something else, right? Because obviously, if it was just that she was a child... Suleta is no, I mean, Suleta is, what, 16, 17, but not 
mm-hmm. for anymore. Um, so that's that's no longer the thing. But if it's something else, if it is the fact that she is a genetic duplicate and there is something special in the genes, as they would say right. in Metal Gear Solid, then like that could be important. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to me. Like, so these Repla children are they? Did they also have bodies at one point, or are they mm. in essence like? mind copies i don't know they she's like ari says they're made from her genes but did they have bodies at one point and are they like failed attempts at i don't know creating a bridge at creating a soletta that just further got absorbed into the lifrith and just became functionally gunned bit pilots i don't know yeah there's i feel like there's so many questions here just because i i mean i was deeply skeptical of any sort of genetic cloning and i i feel like repo children made from genes makes it clear that it's some type yeah of genetic cloning but do they have different voices the repo children it sounded like they do maybe yeah yeah could be i didn't pick up on it distinctly but that's a good question to ask i mean it could all just be the the actress putting on different voices mm-hmm. that's also possible but yeah i'm still just wondering like were they literal children right did they get hooked up to a machine and die? Like, cause there is the one, I guess the one, uh, one, the one scene that we see where, uh, it is a baby Suleta in a cradle looking up right. at the Elfrith and Prospera is crying over a child. So maybe that is like the previous one going into the system. Maybe. I don't right. know. Yeah, I'm curious how many of these symbols are symbols, or are they also MacGuffins? Like, we, we talked yeah. about, a lot of people theorize that the keychain might be symbolic, but also might just be a symbol. Later, Prospera will pointedly refer to the school. Is she referring to the school as a symbol of friendship? Like, the, the connections that Suleta has made up until this point? Or is there something, like, buried in the school that's significant? And there's also Suleta herself. I mean, of course, I like the read where Suleta's... I mean, not, this is not just the read, this is the truth, but like that Suleta's special because she's Suleta. You know, like race, your right. Ray, Ray Skywalker, Last Jedi read. She's special because she's she's special. She's her. But I'm also curious, too, because this is Okochi. What's ticking in her? Yeah, but like from from Prospera's perspective, she's she may as well have outlived her usefulness at this point. Yeah. Again, unless there's something that... It would be it would be really satisfying if there was something inherently special about Saleta that even her mother wasn't aware of, right? That even mm. she hadn't counted on. Like that would yeah. be very appropriate. Permit level nine. <laughs> her cheeks flushed with permit. For the first time. I don't think yeah. it's happened before this. Suleta glows in tandem with the aerial as it decouples from her. At score eight, Aerie says, I can move of my own free will. I'll no longer need a pilot. And that's why you can't cling to me anymore. Not to me or to mom. Despite her protestations, Aerie jettisons Suleta from the cockpit. I wonder if Aerie is trying to act in Suleta's best interest here. Like, it's interesting that the story she recounts is one of Suleta helping her, like which suggests a sir and reciprocity, like a sister, sisters looking out for each other. Like, Mary, maybe Aerie knows how toxic Prospera's hold over Suleta is, and maybe she's trying to sever that connection, similar to Miorene's attempts. Well, back in, the, back in that Cradle Planet story, which came out early in season one, there is a scene where, and again, at this point, it, it doesn't seem like Aerie is actually able to communicate in a meaningful way. 
but um, when Prospera like reveals her plan uh, and Saleta's involvement, uh, Ariel does actually say to that like, oh, she'll go, but like, please just like leave Saleta out of it. So I think that there is there is a desire to to protect Saleta and like spare her uh, the role in whatever bloody revenge Prospera intends. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to uh, completely uh, <clears throat> give give Prospera credit here, but Prospera, you know, isn't throwing her in a dumpster to cover up her tracks. Isn't throwing Celeste right. in a dumpster to cover up her tracks. She's like, she is. I mean, she for a second, she's like, you want to just bring her along? Like you, you seem, you know, almost like you like you still want to be with her. And then says, okay, you know what? You're right. She should go live in the school of her life freely. Now, of course, she's making that decision. Everyone's making decisions for Celeste. Uh, but I think it's yeah. it's interesting for Prospera as a character that, she, yes, she used and manipulated Suleta, but she's not out to make her suffer. Uh, it's almost like some some kind of uh, you know negligence or carelessness almost. Um, she's like you know, like this. You're not the most important thing to me, but I don't want to harm you. It also to me shows that she doesn't see her as a threat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After I watched this episode, I looked at my two daughters. I have one daughter who's two years, three months, and another daughter who's like six weeks. And I was imagining like the younger one, like locking her out, the older one of the house and going, "We, you were the key. We don't need you anymore. Mm. Give it time. Soon. Yep. <laughs> that, that monologue would go great with some Kingdom Heart music. <laughs> Unannounced, Prospera floats down to her daughter and steadies her. Remember, she's out of the cockpit now. Is something wrong with Ariel? With her palms on her chest, she pushes her daughter off and says, It's just as Eric said. Go back to su- school, Suleta. It has all you need to fill your heart. Back in the Ariel, Prospera asks, Are you sure about this, Ari? What if she came with us? You're right. Suleta deserves to live freely, doesn't she? In view of a distant earth, yeah, and and not just the Earth that's distant, but we also see the the ship with Prospera, the Ariel, and Miarina all on it is is a speck heading towards it, further and further away from her. Yeah, a lot of people are hoping for a reentry battle, and you can put me right on that list because reentry battles rule, no matter what show we're talking about. That's one of my favorite episodes of First Gundam is the reentry uh, fight. IBO also has a very good one. Mm. I love I love when they consider scientific con- conditions like gravity. That's stuff always rules. Always, I always cite that episode of Bebop, Wild Horses, but awesome stuff. There's, of course, that great battle in Zeta Gundam. Mm. That's like entirely in re-entry. It'd be funny if some people are theorizing that Suleta is just going to re- re-enter the atmosphere <laughs> in her suit. There's a long way to go. That's a that's <laughs> a long trip. Yeah, that's that's permit score nine. So we have Suleta floating. Suleta's distraught, floating listlessly through space, and she sobs alone. I think the shot composition is really smart here with this final shot. Foregrounding Suleta against Earth only makes her seem smaller by comparison, which really highlights her feelings of loneliness and despair. And is also extremely mimetic. All the Among Us memes came out super quickly. They're all very impressive. See, I know no I know nothing about Among Us. <laughs> Has anyone used the relative size of the Earth in this image to like calculate Suleta's distance to the Earth at this moment? Oh, I don't think I've seen that. You probably could, though, Because right? it seems kind of close, doesn't it, actually? Like, where's Astacassia supposed to be again? 
I heard some people talking about Lagrange points yeah, in relation I, to Oscar Costa. I feel like people situated at Lagrange points. I'm not. I, I'm, okay. I'm just imagining. Then that tracks. Though. Yeah. That tracks if it's yeah. that close. Yeah. yeah, I'm really curious how extensive the G-Witch story Bible is. I'm sure it's pretty extensive, but I would love to get my hands on it. I'm sure they have all the Lagrange points figured out. Yeah. That's probably also, aren't there also like further like because there's Lagrange points for the Earth, but aren't there also like ones further out? I think that so. sounds right to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. My knowledge of this is minimal, based on a cursory reading of like O'Neill stuff and whatever I come across on Gundam wikis. But yeah, the Tol- I, I always say I feel like I say the same thing at the end of episode. But yeah, we got to the end of the episode, folks. Well done. Round of applause. If I had a final thought to contribute, I think, you know, it might feel like this is a bit of a repeat because we ended the last episode with Suleta pushing, I mean, with Miarne pushing Suleta away. And in this episode, we have Eri and Prospera pushing Suleta away. I think I, you can do all sorts of comparing and contrasting. An important contrast that I would put out there is that, uh, you know, Gundam's always concerned with generations. Here we have a sort of previous generation saying, like, no, please, please don't pick up our burden. Like, we do not want to saddle you with our conflicts, which is, you know, perhaps naive. Uh, might not work out the way you think. But I definitely feel like that's a very a very Gundam point to make and is more than just, you know, the some, you know, a situation where you're trying to make a decision for someone else regarding, you know, the, the, the possibility of harm. Now, speaking of Earth, we got a little Mercury world building, solar storms. Mm-hmm. You can True. imagine the power going out all the time on Mercury. Yeah, the weather's not great there. I think that was a point in uh, Cradle Planet as well, where, like, mm. I think it separated, like, a mining expedition, and Saleta and Ariel had to go and save someone who previously was very mean to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was. Her, she and her mother were not well-liked on Mercury, from her recall, or at least distrusted. Well, the kids <laughs> kept disappearing. Something strange yeah, in that house. children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's Suleta's. That's Suleta's like first grade class right there. It's the, it's the Repley children. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> Instead of the children of the coven, it's the children of the first grade class. Yeah, like give me like a classic first grade teacher, Mrs. Kowalski's first. That's yeah. my first grade teacher, <laughs> Mrs. Kowalski's class. The Repley children. The, mm-hmm. <laughs> Tom, any final thoughts? You want to make a prediction? How many cores we're going? Sixty-five cores, or is it going to be up over next episode? Uh, I think it's as as many as zero and as much as two. <laughs> people have thoughts. Like even just we're like idly speculating. People like get very angry but if we don't <laughs> like if we don't go the full four cores. Trust me, I want this to go as long as possible. It would be a break from form, right? The only yeah. Gundam series that have run less than or TV series that have run less than a full year uh, have just been build series. Mm-hmm bringing in the money i do worry though part of me thinks all right okochi planned a very clean and concise ending for a clean and concise ending for 24 episodes it's so popular they need a second episode like how you're gonna force that into being Mm, i don't know i mean would it be fitting if real life capitalism gave us the worst version of spatian capitalism yeah that's really that's you're right pimps that's really on the money (laughs) I would. It'll be curious because the show has been very good, obviously. Um, but you always hear about when Gundam shows potentially shit the bed. It'll be weird doing a weekly podcast with a show that has gone completely off the rails, like like doing that's a the weekly risk you pod- take. Yeah, 
that is the risk that we took. Uh, it's been paying off so far. I'll keep you updated on that. I mean, that was when I was writing a column about uh, build divers. That was not a show I liked all that much. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I would, I remember like the midpoint of that show. I was like praising the villain of that show. It's like, oh yes, he's saying everything that I don't like about that show. I actually agree with the villain of this show. He's basically saying like this show not good because let not like build fighters. <laughs> But whatever, then I did the, then the second season of that ended up being really good. So it worked out, but yeah, you do run that risk when you go week to week, but so far it's been paying off. So cool. Oh, on a quick unrelated note, Tom, are you a G Savior fan? In my mind, it was like, you were on our short list for like G Savior guests. Like I bet Tom likes G Savior. What are your thoughts to put you on the hot seat? Okay. So I, I'm kind honestly like this might be disappointing. I'm kind of ambivalent about G Savior. Okay. Um, I know you. when you guys talked about it, you seem to have a lot of affection for it because you have nostalgia for these uh, kind of low-budget 90s like sci-fi TV dramas. Mm-hmm. I never saw any Star Trek until like two weeks ago. Really? So what, did, what I, did you watch? Uh, TOS, the okay. original series. Um, so like I'm not even watching like the 90s stuff. Right. And anytime I would catch a little bit of that stuff on TV, like it always looked cheap to me. So it's, I've never found that look endearing mm-hmm. um, compared to something like, say, like like an X-Files. It's also like kind of cheap television, but like because it's not all like sets and stuff, it's inherently more grounded and has better production value. And it's, it was all shot on film and it looks better. Whereas I think like, TNG weren't all the effects done literally on video. I don't know. I'm rambling, but my point is that like that's not a specific aesthetic that I'd really have any love for, mm-hmm. and I don't love jank CG. But my main gripe with G Savior has always been that I've always just kind of kind of found it dull. Okay. Like people for the long time be like, "Oh, it's the worst Gundam thing ever." And it's like, no, I don't think that's true. I just don't think it's like that compelling to watch. Well, that would be Twilight. I don't think it's Access, particularly right, entertaining. Tom? What's that? That would be Twilight Axis, right, Tom? At least Twilight. I mean, Twilight Axis is shorter than G Savior, mm-hmm. but I would probably rather watch G Savior just because I haven't seen it in a long time. Hell yeah! Put that on the Nozomi. Put that on the future Blu-ray release. I'd rather watch this than Twilight Axis, Tom Asnable. Yeah, I would love a Blu-ray of uh, of G Savior because the great thing about Blu-ray is like you can, you know metaphorically you can see the strings and i do actually like that and i my understanding is that like the blu-rays of like tng for example you can see like construction paper posted on the bridge to block glare from set lights oh that's the good stuff stuff like that actually does rule now in retrospect but at the time i think i would have thought that that was like cheap looking Mm -hmm. and also like i was a i was a star wars kid Mm -hmm. and for a long time i was like well, you can't like both. <laughs> I did the same thing with Gundam and Macross for a while for some stupid reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's such I a guess, kid long mentality. Story short, yeah, I think G-Saver is okay. The video game's pretty cool, though. Yeah. All right, Tom. Hit us with some promotions at the end of all things. You working on You cook on anything out? Not at the moment. Mostly just like mostly just tweeting. You can follow me on Twitter at Tom Asnable. But since I did that uh, that article for my medium, I don't know. Maybe I'll do more. If I can find something juicy to research and I can motivate myself to actually uh, assemble a narrative out of it, then you'll see something from me. Yeah, writing takes work. 
Yep. Yeah, finding the pieces is fun. Putting them together is hard. You love to see it, but hate to do it. Mm-hmm. All Can't right. See. Yeah, so what are we up to? We are getting very close to our uh, new main feed coverage, which is going to be kicking off with a discussion on Blue Blazes before getting into some some Gunbuster Gynax history before discussing Gunbuster itself. So look forward to coming all that coming in June on the main feed. If you're, Of course, if you're listening to this when it comes out, that means you are on our Patreon, so thank you very much for the support. Uh, reminder that once G Witch wraps up, whenever that happens, we will return to doing uh, bi-monthly turn A Gundam coverage episode by episode, uh, which you know is very exciting. Like I'm, I'm not even necessarily dreading the end of G Witch because that just means I get to watch more turn A, which is pretty good actually, as it turns out. Besides that, what a shock! Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, if you want to get people really angry on you on Gundam Twitter, just say you don't like turn A. Yeah, I don't you know what's really, you know what's really funny actually. Um, I'll occasionally pop my head over on Facebook, a website I barely use anymore. And anytime you get fed, uh, like recommended groups and stuff, <laughs> I get like the I get like the worst Gundam takes ever by like <laughs> by algorithmic recommendation. And Facebook is no exception. And like the groups, it's always like sometimes it does feel like a real throwback. Like there, I did get recommended some posts with like the turn a Gundam and the, the response in that particular community felt like it was straight out of like 2002. It's like, this is what happens when you let an American design a Gundam. It's yeah. like, it's like, <laughs> where have you, like, what, like, how old are you? <laughs> like, where, where did this come from? I thought we, I thought this was all, uh, I thought we all decided that this was good actually. Shout out to Facebook groups. I mean, I, yeah, no, it's it, it is. They are time capsules. Uh, somehow, this was way. like a recent post, right? As far as I could tell, that the, the the fandom there had. I mean, I guess either just emerged or hadn't evolved beyond that sort of take. Uh, very. Yeah, strange. I feel like any of these like divisive, Gundam, like initially divisive Gundam shows, given enough time and distance from them, they find their audience and generally become pretty well liked. G Gundam is another big example yep. of that, right? But like. Turn A was, yeah, mostly polarizing at first in the sense that, like, people saw the Turn A Gundam and couldn't see the context in which it was presented and didn't really have anything else to go on besides, this one looks weird, and I don't like it for that reason. Such a wild take. Mustache Gundam rules. Yeah, Mustache yeah. Gundam for life. Beyond Turn A Gundam, I should mention that we are also working on simulator stuff. We are putting out our front mission simulator episodes uh, on the main feed. The first part going into the history of the first front mission is up on the main feed. Now we'll be putting up part two, which goes into our uh, look into the remake that came out on switch last year, as well as our experiences playing it. Uh, and of course, you know, for simulator patrons, please look forward to the front mission gun hazard simulator episode, which should be coming out uh, in, in mid to late June. That'll be sort of our, our that'll be our next project there. Uh, and then, you know, and beyond that, there there will be more to come more more armored core more other things that and uh more other things too uh, this looks like a new demon x machina is coming and who knows who knows what could happen in simulator land but certainly look forward to from mission gun hazard i want to give credit to dwarf s for our graphic design credit to skin for our art and credit to fretzel hashtag band fretzel for the music that we use pmc i think you had the best bit here with suleta schwartzetta i guess can you repurpose that into a bit or just speak it into a mic 
I mean, as they would say in my favorite Star Wars parody, use the short set. 